The Joe Rogan Experience. Train by day, Joe Rogan Podcast by night, all day. Would you like coffee? I, so, see, I brought my. Uh, oh, mountain, you're a Mountain, mountain Dew guy. Oh boy, I like I like a man who prepares for his podcasts. <laughs> all right, we're rolling. We're up. Did you get that part? Yeah. This dude drinks Mountain Dew diet. <laughs> that is like the anti-environmentalist beverage of choice. Is like, it? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, so, I, aluminum you, is actually good, right? Because aluminum does get re- recycled. Recycle it. Yeah. It does get recycled. Oh yeah, but yeah, it's no problem. We were so heartbroken reading this article recently about plastics, about how it's like five percent, right? Single-use plastics get oh, recycled. Right. Yeah, yeah. Like all the all. Every time you throw your bottle in the right bin, you feel like you're a good person. Yeah. I'm like Mostly I'm a good person. Not. I put it in the blue bin. Yeah. I'm a good person. Yes. The the right way to probably handle that. That's a whole different conversation. Is just simply to burn it and reuse the energy. Right. Um, How would so, you do that though and not pollute the air? We do that all 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 over the world, especially in Europe. Yeah. Uh, you just put some, uh, you know a uh, scrub on the smokestack. You're that's fine. all you do? Like, that's yeah. it's that simple? Yeah. yeah. It really is. It doesn't have any. Well, come on. Some of us have some emissions. Sure. I mean, right. nothing is zero. Right. Risk, is but it like very, a car? Or is it like a million cars? Like, what no, is it, no. What no. I, th- I think it's probably less than a car. So I, I, it's not something I've looked A million cars long. sounds gross, but that's our city. You yes, know, like but every but, day but, in yeah. Austin, you get but, a million cars. But uh, uh, the emissions from, from uh, uh, waste uh, uh, burning, very, very low. Uh, so I remember people worried a lot about dioxins and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, turns out we can you know, get rid of virtually all of it. So it's, these are is not that the trade-off? Things. Is the trade-off um, <clears throat> you have some emissions from the burning of the plastics, but you're getting rid of the plastics, which is a real – is it a net gain for the environment? Because the plastics are a real, real problem, particularly yep. in the ocean and in landfills and just – it's yep. a real issue. So the the real issue here is – once you decide to say you have to switch it into all these different bins, yes. uh, you have everyone sit. Oh, I was just at a conference in Stanford, and you could just see everyone, and I did the same thing. You're sort of like, oh, my God, what am I going to And you feel like you did the wrong thing no matter what you do, and you probably did. And most of it, as you just said, won't get recycled. Why? Because back in you know, five, ten years ago, we just took all of this and sent it to China. Yeah. And had them re- recycle it. And this is why there's so much plastic in the oceans. It's not because anybody, you know, just throw it out. It's because we shipped it away to feel good about ourselves, but we didn't want to pay. And then, of course, when you get this barge with all this crap plastic, you either say, should we, uh, you know, recycle it and spend a lot of money or maybe just, come, you know, happen to lose it on the ocean. That's where most of this plastic actually comes from. So the idea really? is- Really? They just dump it out? Yeah. So if you burn it instead- it's no problem. You just throw everything in one bucket. You recycle the energy, and it's very, very cheap for everyone. Nobody has to sit and stand there and worry. And you'll actually do what you just pointed out: ninety-five percent gets done anyway. So, if we just do that, it will have a net gain on the environment. We'll remove plastics, like particularly from the ocean. Yeah. Uh, who's that young gentleman that we've had on the podcast that developed that machine to extract the plastic from the ocean? Yeah, tip of your tongue, son. Very, very – I mean, he was – I believe he was 19 years old when he came up with the idea and implemented it. You know, had like a few different models. Boyan Slot. Boyan Slot. Thank you. Sorry, Boyan. My my memory's shit in the morning. Um, But 
he figured out how to extract some of it, and then they took that plastic and then converted it into things you could buy, hmm. like sunglasses and things yep. along those lines. And all of this is nice. And, yeah. and look, we should definitely try to clean up the ocean. But again, I tend to think that we try to make it too hard. You know, if you actually want this to work for a population of 8 billion, you need to have simple municipal waste uh, uh, recycling. And that's very often just that you recycle glass, you recycle paper, you burn most of the other stuff. And then you recycle some of the really valuable stuff. But it doesn't that cost a lot of money to do in places that are like strapped for resources? Like one of the things that you always see when you see uh, video footage of uh, countries overseas that are impoverished is you see a lot of trash. Oh, yeah. Because they don't have the money to process oh, it. No, no. Right? And, and that's why the first thing you want is just simply good trash uh, collection. So you get rid of it. That, you know, so we did a big project in Dhaka or, or for Bangladesh. And one of the things we focused on was also just simply getting trash off the off the streets. Because it's unsightly, it actually leads to more crime. It leads to uh, more destitution. It probably also transmits disease. And it's fairly cheap to get rid of. It's, mm. This is not rocket science. So there's a lot of ways that you can do that. Uh, but instead, we come in and say, no, no, you need to recycle. You need to have three different baskets and all that kind of stuff. No, you just need to get rid of it. That's how you also get rid of the plastics in the ocean. Mm. You know, again, and I think we'll have that conversation a lot of times. Uh, a, a lot of these, oh, we should do the absolute best, feels like it's a really good solution, but very often it ends up meaning that you do stuff that will then only be implemented 5% and the other stuff is crap. Hmm. Um, there should be an, a real public understanding of the dangers of these plastics and microplastics getting into your body too. It's it's just so weird that we've developed this entire society based on this petrochemical product that ultimately gets into your body and has negative effects. So the, the microplastics is, are possibly a, a, an issue. It's not quite clear yet whether they are, but that's a concern and that's certainly something we should look at. But also remember, pretty much everything else that you have with plastics is incredibly useful, right? It packages, True. which actually reduces loss of pretty much anything you can think of dramatically. And of course, through COVID, we realized it's a really good thing to have one-use plastic stuff. Yeah. Uh, so, so again, most things in the real world are both a problem and a benefit, and we need to find out how do we make it more of a benefit and less of a problem, but we need to stop having this conversation, oh, you can't have anything of this, you know, this bad thing. Uh, that's not how we organize our societies. That's not how we think, and that's certainly not how we make good choices. That makes sense, but if we know that there are, are alternatives to plastic, and we know that there's so many different problems with plastic, it being non-biodegradable, unless it's like, there's some, isn't there yep. some plastic yep. that they can make with like uh, plant fiber that's yep. biodegradable? Yep. Um, the, then, then there's the phthalate thing. You know, I'm, I'm sure you're probably aware of this. Uh, Dr. Shanna Swan, do you know, do you know this whole thing yeah. about what, what's happening to when women are pregnant and their bodies uh, have levels of phthalates above a certain level? It uh, has an effect on the reproductive cycle of the child. And uh, they can do studies in, in mammals, and they show that when the female is pregnant and she encounters these chemicals from plastics, it fucks with the, the, the gender of the child, like where um, their taints mm. shrink 
which is weird, but in, in mammals, apparently that's a representation of like whether or not it's a male or a, it's like best one of the best distinctions way, ways distinguishing whether it's a male or a female is the size of the taint when it's a baby because the male taint is fifty to one hundred percent larger than the female taint. She's hilarious. She's like she's got a like really funny thing on her uh, Instagram about because uh, it also causes a de- decline in sperm production yeah. and so her way of approaching it that's funny is she has the jizz quiz and she does this thing. she's like this yeah, yeah, yeah. adorable like petite lady who is a, a brilliant doctor but she's she's kind of being funny and at the same time like sounding the warning shot like hey this is fucking with human beings reproductive cycles hmm. and since the invention of uh, petrochemical plastics that we use in basically everything from that point to today, there's a very clear drop in fertility rates, a very clear drop in male sperm count, a very clear drop in penis and testicle size. And with females, there's higher uh, rates of miscarriages. And she believes through her research that th- this is connected hmm. and that these chemicals that we're getting from our, these plastics are literally affecting the development cycle of human babies. And and look, I've 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 done some work on this. Uh, so and the thing you have to worry about. So we should definitely be concerned about that. That sounds things. like and, a and, giant and, issue. And, and we we should certainly be looking at it. Uh, the best data, as I understand this, is uh, the fact that that sperm counts have gone down dramatically uh, over the last uh, thirty to forty years. Uh, but, you haven't looked but, at the taints. Well, well there's a no, I big, big time taint study. Uh, <laughs> yes, sorry. Uh, and, and what it turns out, of course, is uh, that uh, you tell people that they have to abstain for a week or four days or a week. I can't remember. And that's potentially possible that people would do in the fifties. It's very unlikely it happens today. And we know. So that you they think don't. Pe- more people jerk off now, yeah, and that's why the, that's an interesting perspective. So, so I bet the, you're right. The, the, Hold on a second. Now I'm on team. <laughs> now I'm on Team Bjorn. Well, again, that makes again, sense. The, the, the point is not that we shouldn't be concerned about issues and that we should be investigating things. But you also got to remember our civilization is actually really, really good at making sure that we are concerned about all the different things. And how do we know? Because we live much longer. This is one of the things I think uh, you know almost everyone forgets. In 1900, the average life expectancy on planet Earth was 32 years. Last year it was seventy four years, right? But you know why and it was thirty two years, right? It was to infant a large mortality. extent. It was infant mortality about three quarters. But what's happening is still that it goes up. So this is a fantastic statistic. Sure. You're going to be surprised about this. So even in rich countries, it goes up for every year you live. It goes up three more months. So for every four years, you actually become. Uh, you get one more year in life expectancy. You so could be young not... Jamie forever. <laughs> kind of. You're you're going to run out of runway eventually. <laughs> but but the point here is that we're actually really good at doing these things. And yes, we should still be concerned. One of the reasons why we're good at it is because we're good at being concerned. But we should not be so scared that we end up thinking, oh, my God, you know, all these things are going Well, wrong. I don't think people are necessarily scared, but they should be. I think they should be concerned, and I think we should recognize when things are detrimental to human health. Yeah. You know, like the plastics thing. Like, to just dismiss that and go, well, everything's better than it was before, and you live longer. Right, but it might, like, literally be affecting the way human beings develop in a negative way. And who knows what – I mean, right now they're looking at sexual side effects. What kind of cognitive – improve or uh, cognitive impairment side effects Mm -hmm. does it have? Yeah. What kind of – I mean – who the fuck knows? Yeah, and and we had a very good example of that with the uh, lead that yes, we added to, uh, to gasoline, and that was a terrible idea. Please uh, explain the story behind that because it's really bananas. 
So the, the fundamental thing is it makes your gasoline run a little better. Uh, so you added this lead uh, to all cars. Uh, what stops your car from knocking? Yeah. Yeah, and those old engines like bang, 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 bang. And they didn't do it quite as much. <laughs> I love the sound effects. Those old, you ever yeah. see those old shitty cars? Man, they were <laughs> fucking, it was like guns were going off. Yeah. And, 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 you know, and it just had that huge side effect that actually makes us all dumber. Yeah, uh, the whole and, population. Yeah. Giant yeah. populations of cities lost many percentage points of IQ. Yeah, of so, IQ. so like uh, uh, three to five IQ points. That's nuts. Five uh, percent. Yeah. Yeah. Just so your car could run smoother. <laughs> and, and, and this again. Yeah, it shows because oh. we all remember. I don't know, uh, thalidomide. Yeah, the the idea that you were thalidomide. Giving, yeah. Thalidomide. Sorry, I, yeah. I, I I just read these words. I don't actually. Oh, say you never them. heard thalidomide baby before? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a terrible. Story. Yes, terrible. and 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 the point is, there are these terrible stories, and they're sign markers to tell us we should be careful. But again, I also just want to come back to realizing that when you look at the whole picture. We're actually doing amazingly much better. Remember, at the same time, sure. while we lost these five IQ points, what we see now in IQ development is that kids are getting smarter and smarter, probably because you get better food, uh, you get better childhood, you get better education, you get more stimulated. There are all these kinds of things. So we've actually gone up, what, 30 IQ points or something over the last 100 years. So at the same time, as it, it's a little controversial because you try to standardize at 100, but fundamentally what you've seen is a dramatic increase in IQ. And yes, uh, uh, lead was a stupid idea. We've taken it out and it's mostly cleared up. And now you say dramatic increase in IQ. What's that attributed to? So there's a lot of controversy. We don't quite know. I mean, as I mentioned, I, we think it's because you know kids are no longer starving. Uh, they're no mm. longer. They get good uh, uh, good nutrition. Uh, good nutrition. They get much more stimulated. One of the important things is that kids get stimulated when they're young. Uh, that they actually get to play around and learn stuff. Uh, you know, video games is probably also one of the things that, uh, that actually you know increase your uh, eye brain coordination. You shouldn't kind of tell people that. Then they're just going to play video <laughs> games. I'm increasing my brain coordination. I think that's actually been proven, though, hasn't yeah, it? Yeah. That it has a similar effect on the brain as uh, traditional games of, of intellect, like chess. Yeah. So, so it's nuts. You know, it, well, it, it again, you know, so I guess the point that I try to make, and I'm sure we'll get to that when we start talking about global warming and all the other problems, is that we need to recognize that we have real problems in this world. But it's not that the world is sort of, you know, the wheels are coming off, right. uh, which is very often the conversation that I think uh, a lot of people feel like they're in. Uh, when you ask, you know, uh, kids and young people, uh, for instance, on climate change, they're terrified. Yeah, that's, a, that's an unfortunate thing because a lot of these young kids that are gluing themselves to paintings, they don't have a real perspective. They're like 18, 19 years old, and they really think like they're saving the world. Yeah. Because their brains aren't fully formed. And they've been, like, devouring propaganda like it's cheesecake. Yeah. That's the problem. Yes. It's like, you know, I had on Randall Carlson and Graham Hancock yesterday. And the podcast will be released on Thursday. And it's this amazing podcast talking about moments in the Earth's history where the Earth experienced asteroid impacts, <clears throat> comet impacts. And that there's a period around 12,000 something years ago where we for sure got hit by these big impacts of either exploding in the sky above earth or hitting the ground and there's plenty of like physical evidence of this and it's called the younger driest impact theory but they were talking about the rapid change in the climate how the the sea levels rose the ice caps melted all because we got pummeled by asteroids like this shit has gone on forever 
that's just natural stuff from getting hit by space. If you look at like the cycles of the like, if you go back a million years in Earth and look at all the highs and lows, you're like, oh, this thing's never been stable without yeah. us even existing. It's yeah. never been stable. So I guess the question is, how much of an effect are we having on these wild cycles? What can you really blame it on? And what can we do, if anything, to turn it around? Yeah. So it, you're those are the reasonable yeah. questions, right? <laughs> yes, and and a long one. Uh, Sorry. So, no, Sorry no, about no, that. I get a little carried away. <laughs> I get excited about this one because it seems kind of cultish. It, it is. So, so look, if you look around and if you look back in time, absolutely, there's been huge changes, as as you point yeah. out. You know, uh, sea levels from from uh, an ice age to today has gone up what 400 feet. Uh, so yeah, without us even uh, doing shit, with nothing from yeah. you know uh, our our impact. Uh, with all that said, so that's sort of the background, and that's important to know. We don't live in thousands or millions of years. Uh, we live right now, right. and we kind of care about what's going to happen in the next 100 and next 200 uh, years. To a large extent, also because we built all of our cities. So, you know, Austin is built in a pretty warm climate, I'm assuming. Uh, you know, coming from southern Sweden, I think it's uh, it's a lot warmer here than it is where, where yeah, I'm, a lot warmer, yeah, yeah. yeah. So you know, <laughs> cities are built to the temperature that they used to have right. right for the last hundred years. So if temperatures change, even if it's just somewhat, it'll be inconvenient. It'll actually be a problem, and that I think is really why we're talking about global warming. It's a problem that we are causing. So we are actually changing the temperature. Not by these enormous amounts that you're talking about. They're not the asteroids of the world, but there's you know a, a, an issue that we should be careful about and w that we should pay attention to, and that we should talk about. So how do we fix it in the best possible way? Well, let's I, hold on, before you go yeah. to that. How do we know how much of an impact our society is having on the overall effect? Like if there is a warming of the globe, hmm. how do we know? How much of an impact our point has? Is there real science that points out the amount of carbon and the emissions that we release has X amount of effect, which will equal this amount of temperature rise? Is that solidified? So I, I'm a social scientist, right? So okay. I basically just read oh, all you're the one UN of those climate. Guys. I'm one of those guys, yes. Sorry. <laughs> Should I leave now? Um, so, so I basically just take for granted what the UN climate panel guys are okay. telling us. I think they have. You know, I've, I've spoken to a lot of my, uh, I've read a lot of their work. I think they're really trying hard to show that what, what they typically say is between half and all of the change that we've seen over the last hundred years is because of us. Uh, and I, they've, they've sort of t trended towards all uh, as because of us. Uh, it feels like that's possibly a little bit too much. But you know, most of it is certainly because of us. Most uh, so, of the change in climate is so, because so of us. So most of the change that is about two degrees Fahrenheit that we've seen in change over the last 150 years. And that's all so, because of carbon. It's that's all because, because of methane from yeah, cattle production. Yeah. It's basically because we use fossil fuels and then we also use coal. Emit, yes, coal, oil, gas, and then a little bit of farts from cows. Yeah. And so um, that has not necessarily been a good thing for the earth. <laughs> no, not when you just look at the impact on climate. Because as I said, if you built your cities and if you built your lives around one temperature, if it changes a little bit, that's a problem. If the oceans but, boil, just move yeah, in a little. Well, well but it's not <laughs> the oceans are going to boil. That, that's Have where you not we get into seen this. the girl who throws the soup? She has a whole she video on YouTube. Yeah. The girl threw the soup on the Van Gogh. I saw that. She's making some really good points. She's I making some she really good points. She might be able to turn you around. Maybe I should leave. <laughs> no. Anyway, so, so really, the, the point here is 
this is a problem, but it's not the end of the world. And I think that's really where we need to get back to and realizing this is not what is going to change our entire future. It's going to have a, a, a negative impact. But remember also at the same time, fossil fuels have basically made it possible for us to have the industrial revolution and become incredibly safe in so many different ways. I mean, how did you get here this morning? I flew. You flew. It doesn't oh. matter. I drove. I was hoping you drove you'd an say electric drive. car. Yeah. I'm good for the oh, environment. There, there you go. Yes, yes. And, <laughs> I'm and doing yeah. my part. I feel virtuous. You, I, I, I bet you do. Uh, but you know, most people actually get around. Your food is produced by uh, by uh, uh, by fertilizer, which is very often from gas. Uh, natural gas, uh, our transportation, our electricity, pretty much everything is mostly focused around uh, fossil fuels. It's pretty nuts so, to bank everything on this one thing. Like it's it's very bizarre how society has moved like completely in that direction. How many things that we need mm. fossil fuels to create, like containers and tires and this and that and clothing and sneakers and eyeglasses. I mean, <laughs> there's so much shit that we use fossil fuels for. It makes you wonder, like I wonder what would have happened if we never took that path as a culture. If we only used fossil fuels for fuel and we never figured out how to turn it into stuff. Yeah, we, we would have been a lot poorer. Yeah, we've yeah, never we, had computers. Well, we would, you know, think about you know, what, what it looked like in around 1800 in England. That, that would probably be where we'd be about, right? Yeah. The, 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 the point is, of course, and, and you're making that argument really well, uh, fossil fuels are just an incredible boon to civilization. And then they also have this problem. Yeah. And, and so that's where we need to find a way to slowly and eventually find ways to produce all of that stuff you just talked about without the negative impacts of fossil fuels. And that's going to be hard, and that's not you know, an easy trip. What about nuclear? Nuclear absolutely could be part of the solution. So people are incredibly frightened about nuclear. But remember, if you look at what it actually takes to produce energy, uh, nuclear is one of the safest things possible. Now, all technologies have risk, right? If you put up solar panels, you'll have some people falling down from the roofs putting them up. I'm, I'm not kidding. This is an occupational hazard. Uh, but solar panels are some of the safest things together with nuclear. Uh, you know, they, uh, uh, so, uh, so Chernobyl, which was by all kinds of ways a terrible accident. I'm Certainly glad you said that. I thought you were pro with... Chernobyl for a minute there. <laughs> yeah, no. I was we're... looking at this guy. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to say no, no, I'm not. <laughs> uh, so, so Chernobyl, uh, you know, probably killed uh, in the order of a hundred to two hundred people, uh, which is not nothing. But, but it remember, destroyed this, the area. This is, this is the biggest catastrophe we've ever had with nuclear power. Uh, regularly, coal-fired power kills, you know. Millions of people. Really? Uh, so yeah, millions, millions across the world. Millions of people die from coal power. So this is basically because, uh, especially in the developing world, you don't put smoke, uh, you don't put scrubbers in your smokestacks. So it just oh. makes it incredibly polluted. If you've ever been to uh, New Delhi in the in the in the fall. Uh, it just, it, it, I, I'm assuming it's a little bit but worse than it was uh, to be back in London in the 1950s. You know, you almost can't see your way forward, forward and you can just feel it in your throat and everything. Apparently, and, and you um, inhale all of that. Like uh, 
like fires, like fireplace fires, you know, like yes. where you have in the heart. Like a lot of people think that's good. That's terrible. It's terrible. Yes. Burning yeah. wood like that is one of the worst things for the air. Absolutely. So what people don't get <laughs> if is- If everybody did it, it would be horrible. If, 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 and we're going to have a lot more of that in Europe this uh, winter because of yeah, the whole yeah. Russian issue. But, uh, but, but, you know, what people don't get is most of the world's poor. So about 3 billion people on this planet- they cook and keep warm with really dirty fuels like dung, cardboard, wood, whatever they can get their hands on. And that means the average indoor air pollution in these homes is higher and worse than it is in outdoor Beijing. Wow. We have no it's uh, The World Health Organization estimates it's equivalent for each person to smoke two packs of cigarettes every day. This what? is three So they're cooking indoor with that. fires? Is that yeah, what they're doing? Yeah, yeah. Wow, and you keep warm with these because yeah. uh, you know cold at night, oh my and God. and we don't we don't have any sense of of uh, of these impacts. So clearly, so I, let me just tell you what, a fun story in in Denmark. Uh, the environmental uh, agency they were trying to find out how much uh, in uh, indoor air pollution do you get if you're right next to a major street. And so they were measuring, you know, they rented this apartment that was empty and put up measurements in there. And every once in a while, they couldn't understand. They just got these incredible spikes in there. And they were like, this, this shouldn't be coming from, from outside, right? Turns out it was when the neighbor lit candles. Wow. That tells you how dangerous it is. People think it's really nice to have the uh, you know, uh, fire and, and, the, uh, and the stove or, or these candles on, but actually incredibly polluting. Oh wow! Well, some people go nutty with the candles. That's got to be horrible. Like yes. someone has their whole like yes. R. H. Shafir special Jew, which is out right now on YouTube. Just gonna bring that up. You're just going to bring that up. <laughs> Let's go to that. Go to a clip of it. My friend Ari Shafir was polluting the environment. Not only does he not care about the environment, but he snuck in pollution. I'm sure he did this shit on purpose. It's available right now on YouTube. Behind Ari. Best special he's ever done. <laughs> Look at all those candles. <laughs> he's killing the air. He's forcing people to breathe toxic fumes. Yep. While he's doing his jokes. Son of fake. a bitch. They look real though. No, they're real. They had a they um had a life of eight hours of lit when they were normal, but then th when they turned the air conditioning on, the air was blowing down on the candles. Yep. So they were burning through this. So this lady had to get like extra candles overnight. <laughs> it was a giant affair. <laughs> like nine thousand candles overnight. Yeah. But, and mind you, they just pumped up the air pollution as well. Right? But anyway, Burn it extra fear, fast. Jew, it's available right now on YouTube. He's got over 2 million views. 2.2. So he's, uh, he's polluting the environment by doing that. So people that do fireplaces, you think, oh, it's going to be so romantic, sit by the fireplace. You're polluting the environment. If everybody did it, it would well, be horrible air quality. Well, you're polluting your own indoor uh, yeah. environment. So, I mean, in that sense, I'm like, all right, you know, it's a little bit like skydiving. You know, but man, you're, if you're it's camping. It's fine if you take it. If you're camping and you have a little campfire going on, maybe it's a little bad for the environment, but how good is it for you? Yeah. That's where people draw that line. Like, no one's out here. <laughs> no one's out here. We're in the middle of nowhere. Exactly. And we're, we're staying alive with, no. with actual fire, warming up. But when you go then to India, they burn all their uh, you know, yeah. fields right next to a uh, new So Delhi. the problem is poverty. Yeah. Yes. And what gets us out of poverty quicker? And that's petrochemical products, fossil uh, fuels. It's it's basically energy. I mean, yeah, that's the capitalist versus can, the Marxist. Can I, can um, I show you a graph? Argument about this. Sorry, stuff. I'm no, I'm, no, no. Go ahead. I'm a graph guy. So if Please I can show, show on, the on the B two. I like how you have a wood cover. It looks cool, no? On your MacBook. Yeah. So this is you see how rich people are out the X 
uh, the, the horizontal axis, and then you see how much energy you have up on the, uh, on the uh, y-axis. And mm. what you basically see is the richer you are, the more energy you use, or the other way around. Well, of course. Yeah. This, this is not rocket science, right? Climate change people that fly around in private jets are the biggest hypocrites. Yes. Like, <laughs> you're, you're selling that. You're going to the World Economic Forum on a fucking jet with three people in it. Yes. Get out of here, man. <laughs> you hoser. <laughs> yeah. But, well, so yeah. what is, what do you, if, are you conspiratorial about this push Towards a climate change, I mean, or, or, or towards a, a climate change crisis mentality where, you know, there was a, a famous Project Veritas video with a guy who worked for CNN and they caught him on undercover camera and they were talking about using climate change to get people excited. I assumed he was talking about for ratings, hmm. which makes sense. If you're a producer and you work in Hollywood, you know, if the Kardashians are fighting with their boyfriend, get in there, let's go. That's that's money, right? Yep. That's what you yep. do. And if that's happening, oh my God, the climate. Like everyone freaks out, the climate. They're glowing their, their hands to Picasso's. Oh Jesus, the climate. If that's going to get you ratings, your job is to get ratings. Your yep. job is not to educate the American people. You can barely figure out life yourself, right? You're 34 years old. You got a half a million dollars in student loans. You can't believe you work for CNN. <laughs> what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to fucking put the climate change in everybody's face because yeah. that's how you're going to sell tickets. Yeah. That's, so, what, so, that's what they're doing. So climate has that wonderful opportunity that it can actually fundamentally get us to talk about every time something out there happens, it can be news and it can be somebody's fault. Uh, so right. yeah, every time right. there's a flood, every time there's right. a storm, every time there's heart anything. attacks, heart attacks, well, or climate change. I'm, I'm sure they'll come Have up you seen with that? that. I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. They, no, that's real. Oh God. Yeah. Yes. There's articles written yeah. about uh, the climate change may may be causing all these sudden deaths and heart attacks. And and look again, there is something to this. So the idea that when you have very high temperatures, you actually have more heart attacks and you have more people dying. So yes. Of uh, uh, heat right. deaths are are bad. You also have uh, more people dying if they're not taking care of their body, and no one talks about that. Climate change causes heart attacks. A second look at the data. Hmm. How good is the evidence implicating climate change? Climate change as a cause of heart attacks? Not very. Let's take a critical look at some of this research. So a slew of recent studies suggested that climate change increasing the number of heart attacks worldwide. The hypothesis suffers from many critical deficiencies. The most important being that rates of heart disease and thus heart attacks in the industrialized world have plummeted as our ability to prevent and treat coronary artery disease has improved. Studies have reported a slowdown in this trend. Have uh, Studies that have reported a slowdown in this trend have also detected rises in the prevalence of obesity, metabolic syndrome, and type 2 diabetes. What we were just saying. All well-known risk factors for heart disease. So it's not that climate change is causing heart disease disease it's that people are doing things that they shouldn't be doing with their body in terms of like letting their body get obese or not taking action and going to the gym and mm. altering their diet and they need encouragement and it should be if you really wanted to like lower costs for healthcare worldwide especially nationwide a, a national program encouraging people instead of just putting like a black square on your Instagram on Tuesday how about encouraging people through one entire month to do a hundred sit-ups and a hundred push-ups and go up you know walk 10,000 steps every day just yep. encouraging people and everybody have to fucking be accountable online 
Yep. If everybody did that, people We'd would just shed weight. Yeah. Yeah. They would shed weight. All sorts of medical problems would go away if they're capable of doing this, of course. Mm-hmm. If they're not, if they already have a health problem, that's it's obviously not their fault. But there's so many people that can improve their life, and there's yep. no encouragement to do it. Yep. All they talk about is like the fear of what happens if this comes for you. The fear. The climate is going to make you have a stroke. The hmm. climate is going to make you stay indoors. The oceans are going to boil. It's like, Jesus Christ, tell me what I can do to make life better right now. Yeah, and right? so you're absolutely right. We can do a lot ourselves. Uh, with, with that said, though, it's not that there is nothing to this point. Uh, so can can I just show uh, the, the same? Uh, uh, so well, I'd imagine if it gets hotter, people are going to have heart attacks. Yeah, so it makes yeah. sense. Yeah, but so, that's because so they're, they're not very resilient. Well, but, right? but you know, uh, it, it's especially old people. Right. And so right, you know, right. it's not unreasonable to say that this is going to be an issue. And and you know, there is a lot of people out there telling us, "Oh my God, there are going to be more uh, heat deaths because of global warming." Yeah, it's scary. Uh, it is but, scary, but. You also have to then, uh, if, if I can show a B3, you also have to see, so what this shows, this is a new Lancet study from uh, uh, 2020. What? Each year rising temps save 166,000 lives? Yeah, this is kind of surprising, right? You know so, who told me that the first time? I'm sorry to interrupt you. Go ahead. But uh, Randall Carlson said, uh, he goes, climate change where it gets warmer, it's not necessarily good, but climate change where it gets colder is bad. Yeah. That's bad. Yeah. He said, everybody's scared about global warming. You should really be scared about global cooling. It's cool. yeah. not dismissing global warming. Say, so like, understand, like, when temperatures drop, you can't grow food, kids. Yeah. Like, it gets bad. Yeah. And then we're really fucked. So if I, if I can just show you this one up here. So if you look, there's an enormous amount of cold deaths in the world. So there's about four and a half million people die from cold every what? year. In the U.S., how is that possible? 170,000 people die from cold every year. What? Why? Because every winter, you actually have to keep your home heated well for six months, especially up in the north, yeah. right? Uh, in order to not have you know, uh, uh, arteries clog, you have heart attacks, that kind of thing. What happens when it gets colder and you get cold, the body restricts its uh, uh, it blood flow out to the, uh, uh, to the surface, and you get higher blood pressure, and that's a very well-known uh, risk factor for, for getting heart attacks. So you actually have a lot of people that die because they don't get enough heat, especially older people. I never would imagine that many people freeze to death. And and this is, of course, the point. You know, do you remember the heat dome last year? The heat dome. The 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 thing that killed a lot of people up in uh, in uh, uh, um, up in Washington and, and British Columbia. Oh, that's uh, right. Yes. Yeah, there was, so there, there was yeah. a huge heat wave. It killed what seven hundred people. Yeah, huge issue. And you know, got covers for for of uh, all papers and and uh, CNNs and all that for for a week. And that is a real problem. That's certainly something that we're going to see more of from climate change. But you never hear about this fact that 170,000 people die from cold every year in the US. I've and never what, heard that before. And what and this is this is not, you know, some quack science. This is the Lancet. This is the uh, global burden of disease. Yeah. What was the number? Did you 170,000. Uh, so you Wasn't should... that what the Lancet just said? What was the paper? Put the paper up again so we can take a look at it. Uh, well, so that's plug. the gl- global right. burden of disease. If you go first. to uh, uh, G, B, I D. just typed in cold deaths in the U.S. per year, and it said since 1979, only like 19,000 people have died from cold-related yes. Yes. diseases. That's that's because if you ask, and there's another there's another uh, organization that just keeps track of how many people died from cold if you actually and it got in the newspaper. That's of course very very few. Most of these are statistical deaths. So these are deaths that happens because whenever the temperature is lower, there's a slightly higher risk of dying. 
and that slightly higher risk is the cold death. Oh, so is this like a died with COVID or died no, from no, COVID no, no, thing? No, Are no. these people it's, that are already dying and then it gets really cold and they die? No, no. This is, they would not have had this problem had they not been experiencing this cold. So every year you see, uh, so if you, if you take over the year, you see this trend. Uh, so from December, for, sorry, from January, it's high, and then the death rate is low, and then it gets high again. Mm -hmm. This is basically because cold is dangerous and heat not nearly mu as much so. Right, but um, how are they attributing those deaths directly to cold? If like, What is the statistic that you looked up, and where's, what's I, the source of that? So key points. So this is from, what is this from? The EPA. Government.climate. So this is the EPA. Between 79 and 2016, the death rate as a direct result of exposure to cold, yep. underlying cause of death. So that's freezing to death. Yes, that's not like from strokes and heart attacks. Yep. And right, okay. Um, yep. Generally range from 1 to 2.5 deaths per million people. With year-to-year -year fluctuations, overall total of more than 19,000 Americans have died from cold-related causes since 1979, according to death certificates. So what are they putting on the death certificate of these people that are dying that you're counting with the 166,000? So, the, uh, sorry, that's the 170 for the U.S.? Or, yeah, yeah. What, what, whatever the Lancet study so, said, 166. Sorry, the Lancet study is a global study, and okay. that was an increase in the number of people. Oh, uh, of oh people. I'm sorry. So, so, so United the, States, 170,000. Yeah, that, that's the global burden of disease. So they are an international study out of University of Washington that tries to estimate all the deaths and where do they come from. Uh, so, you know, people die from all kinds of things, but what was the proximate cost of this? Was it too hot? Was it too cold? Right. Uh, was it that you were in a, an, an accident? All these kinds of different things. And a lot of, you know, uh, 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 this is the kind of thing where you say obesity costs, causes a lot of, you know, deaths. I can't remember what that is, you know, like a million deaths. But it's not on the death certificate. It's not on the death certificate I because it's a, it's a statistical correlation that you died because, or you died right after uh, the uh, the uh, cold or the heat snap. Is there a potential to manipulate that in one way or another? I mean, look, again. If I'm, someone has a, a political sure. bias to push one thing or another. So, yes, there is a, there is a way. So, for instance, uh, uh, curiously, everybody that dies from, uh, from heat die after one or two days. So that's why it's such good news, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, sorry, sorry. Such good newscasting, right? When when it happens, you can show the bodies right there. Mm -hmm. uh, when you have cold deaths, it typically happens uh, after 15 to 30 days. So you need to have cold for a long time because then you're starting to work that up and your you know, your body restricts your your temperature. That's what causes it. So you really need to lag these. A lot of times you don't do those, that analysis, and so you only find the heat deaths but not the cold deaths. Huh. So there's a wonderful study that actually showed uh, back in the uh, uh, early 2000s or late 2000s when uh, when fracking uh, came on board. Uh, they found that uh, you know gas prices went down, so about uh, half of all Americans uh, uh, heat their homes with gas. And so what happened was you actually could show that because people could now afford to heat their homes better, especially if they were poor. That actually every year saves about 11,000 people from dying from heat, uh, sorry, from cold deaths. Isn't that amazing? It is amazing. So these cold deaths, we're talking about people who, because of being in freezing cold temperatures, they have a variety of different detrimental health problems like 
What it's, is, like it's what takes yeah. is it just because they're it's typically not that they're older folks yes they're it's almost entirely older people okay this is not because they're sitting and shivering and you know you can sort of see the uh, the ice uh, it's just they're a bit the, more fragile it's, it's and when that, it's cold at night it's just that their homes are not all that well heated and you know right. it's a and you have to too, keep the heat they, on at night yes. and they can't quite afford it and so they right. keep it you know like one or two or three degrees lower God, than no they one, probably want it to no one thinks that kills people. No, and, I never would have taken and, that and, and, the, and the reason why it kills people is because this is a lot of millions of people, and each one of them are put into this little risk factor. Mm. And the the overall point that I tried to make with that graph uh, and with the Lancet study was just that you know you hear all this thing about more heat deaths, and that's absolutely true because of global warming. But you never hear the fact that as temperatures rise, you're, of course, also going to see fewer cold deaths. And actually, right now, it turns out that we're seeing many fewer cold deaths than we're seeing increasing heat deaths. What's more preventable, the, the heat deaths or the cold deaths in terms of, like, um, medical intervention? So it's, it's actually not medical intervention. It's just no, you know, like air IVs, conditioning. Like fluid IVs. They do that a lot of, to people that get de- severely yes. dehydrated. But, but again, remember, these are not people that are – that are you know have been uh, 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 in freezing water for ten minutes or something or right you know, these are these are people that are just a little too cold or a little too warm and the simple way to deal with that is air conditioning that's why as temperatures have risen in the U S we've seen declining levels of heat death because you guys can afford air conditioning. And that's, mm-hmm. of course, what we need to make sure that the rest of the world can afford. So it's actually easier to deal with heat because we know how to do that, whereas cold requires you to have cheap energy for the whole heating season. And that's much, much cost, uh, much costlier and, and harder, especially for poorer people. So when people talk about our impact um, on on the world with oil and how we're ruining the the future of our planet and so the the hysteria of these young people what do you think is the thing to tell them to try to give them uh, a more balanced perspective of what's actually happening like if you you think it's a problem you think what people are doing is a problem but it's not as big of a problem that's what that's what kind of has to be balanced out because it's either everything or it's nothing Yes. That's the that's the narrative that we hear today. Either global warming's not an issue at all. Oh, you silly goose! Why are you worried about that? Or it's oh my god, we're all going to die. Yeah, those are the only two options you have. And I want to get people to understand that global warming is a problem, but it's actually mostly a problem in the sense that the world is getting better and better. But because of global warming, it gets slightly slower, much better. That's a hard one to tell. Can I just show you one slightly graph? Slightly slower, much better? So it gets better and better, but slightly slower. I'll, let me show okay. you two graphs. So if I can show you from A, 22. So it's impeding our progress. Yes, it's impeding our progress slightly. Slightly. Like so what kind of a percentage are we talking l- about? L- let me just, first, if I can just show you uh, A, 22. So this one shows the deaths over the last century of all the things that you think of as climate, right? Floods, droughts, storms, wildfires, and extreme temperatures. They don't do a particularly good job on extreme temperatures, but let's just leave it at that. This is the best data that we have for the world. And what it basically shows is the complete opposite of what these guys that are gluing themselves to the Picasso, right? This is fundamentally a situation of back when you were poor in the 1920s, about half a million people died every year. You know what would be amazing to look at right next to that? The deaths from donuts. It would be the total opposite direction. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Look, look. <laughs> getting you know, richer, isn't that weird? Getting richer means that you can allow yourself 
to go, you know, die from lots and lots of donuts. Yeah. But it's a decision. Well, it's a lot of poor people oh. as well. Yeah. I mean, that, that food's cheap and it's filling. You know, but if you looked at food-related deaths, let's see if there's hmm. food-related deaths. How many? Like, how would you just? How would you make that distinction of people who? Would it be people who died from obesity and diabetes? Like, how would you say that? Because it's obviously, it's obviously they, a lot yeah. of other um, and they, they die autoimmune that. diseases yeah. that come from being obese. Yeah, there's not just a few. So, like the 500,000 from 20, 1920, I bet we hit that every year from obesity. Oh, I'm sure in America. Like, what do you think it is in America? Like, heart disease and that's... Heart like, disease is probably a couple million, isn't it? That's a lot, right? Um, but the heart disease, one, Sorry, can be attributed to genetics. Two can, and a half million dead in total in the U.S., so it's probably uh, at one million or something. And how many of that, how many of those you could attribute to sedentary lifestyle and obesity, and how many of it's just uh, unfortunate genetics? Because hmm. that happens yep. as well. Like, what, what do you think... Give me a... Is there... Does anybody do an accounting on how many people die from obesity every year? Oh God, yeah. Just the I'm very sure. That's like the bottom line, right? Like you, you, they're attributing it to you on your death certificate. They're saying obesity. Yeah. That's that can't be that many, right? I How many imagine that? that. I don't know. Yeah. I think the all the other effects, yeah. like heart attacks, strokes, all the things that come from being obese, diseases, susceptibility to diseases. But I think your point is well taken, right? Because it tells you that all these protesters are gluing themselves up right. there and are worried about the end of the world from climate change should be much more worried about. They donut, should glue themselves right? to Krispy Kreme. <laughs> there you go. Krispy Kreme is damn good, yeah. though, especially when it comes out warm. When I look this up, it's it's uh, it's a contributing factor. It, it, I don't know that it's listed as like... Yeah, that's what I was getting at. It seems like it'd be hard to quantify. Is it hard to quantify? Yeah, I mean, because like if someone's fat and they get cancer, like is that what happened? Hmm. You know, yeah. what, what caused the, it? Would they have gotten this cancer This is what anyway? burden of disease actually does. So yeah. they do this for the whole globe. They try to, you know, they, they would probably parcel it out for for uh, uh, for um, obesity as well. Yeah, uh, obviously that was one of the big things that people had a problem with with COVID deaths. There was people that were already terminally ill and got COVID and they attributed it to COVID. Yeah. But, you know, your body is like an ecosystem. And if you have, like, a major insult coming into your body, like being obese or a disease or if you live in one of these horrible places that has massive amounts of pollution, that's something that must affect. I mean, that's a big – that is a big impact on longevity, right? And, like people and, that live in those polluted poor. cities. Yeah. Yes, and just being poor. Yeah. Bad nutrition, bad health care, exactly. all the above, stress, yeah. violence, you know, yeah. all, of, all of that. Um, that. But that's not convenient. Bjorn, that's not good for our little conversation. Our conversation <laughs> no, no. is, I have to glue myself to the Van Gogh and throw fucking soup yeah. at it. <laughs> can I can I just show you on uh, uh, sorry B, Jesus, uh, B eight. Yeah, I have a quick question on the other climate one. I was just watching the, a movie about World War One last night. That's why I asked this. Wouldn't war deaths shouldn't they maybe be included, or would they be very high in like this first area, like 1920, 1940? Oh, so this, this was only for no, was, comparing to, like you know like. Millions of people died because of war yes. and other things be due to the war. Oh God, yes. These, this would be much. This would be much bigger and you know, centered around 1940. Uh, but I'm only right, looking not at the climate change, floods, droughts, storms, and wildfires. That's I was also. I didn't. What I haven't. I what giant floods or I'm not saying there weren't. I just never heard of any. No, I think what, what he's talking about with climate related deaths is mostly people freezing to death. Well, no, no. So sorry. This, this is exactly the point. I'm that just asking we, 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 for clarity. We, there, there was huge floods in China and India okay. in the 1920s, 1930s, huge famines, you know, things that we just never heard of. Well, we heard a little bit about it back then. 
Uh, but then we've forgotten it. Yeah. And and then when we hear about these things that will cause a thousand deaths, rem- remember, let me take a, a, an example I know a lot more about. Uh, so the world's biggest hurricane death was in Bangladesh in 1970. It was a big hurricane that came in, killed uh, somewhere between 300 and 500,000 people in Bangladesh. Uh, this was mostly because, you know, uh, uh, they were totally unprepared. There was very bad communication. It was also East Pakistan back then. That was one of the reasons why they broke loose, because they felt they weren't really being taken care of. Mm. Today, and, you know, this in many ways defined Bangladesh, and so they have taken great care in getting much better uh, prevention. They have information. They have these centers where you can assemble up on high areas where you can actually keep everyone safe and stuff. So now the same kind of hurricanes come in, and they kill sort of tens or hundreds of people instead. Did you see that community that they established in Florida that survived this last hurricane with, saw, with yeah, I heard that. like yeah. flying colors? Is that a word? You you know that expression. Um if you if you go to um what was the hurricanes called? Yeah. The last one, the big one Ian. that just hit Florida, Ian. Ian. Yeah. If you go to uh Hurricane Ian uh Solar Community Florida. It's uh I believe it's 2000 homes. They're completely off-grid in the sense that they they have a, a solar hmm. field, and it powers these homes, and they built homes to withstand hurricanes. Yep. And so this is a bad hurricane, so it was yep. a really good test for them, and it, it nailed them. And everything was fine. They kept their internet. They kept their electricity. So look at how, isn't that wild? Look how they did that. They have this massive, massive field of solar hmm. panels. So it's called Babcock Ranch. And this, uh, this community was established just to give people a safe place from a natural disaster. Because a lot of the yeah. houses they built before, you know, the engineering, when they were building these houses in like the 1950s, I mean, did they really know how to survive a fucking hurricane? You know, yeah. they just built a good house. They tried their best. But see if you can get some photos of what, what the houses look like. They look like normal houses. Yeah. But they built these houses with very strong tolerances. And they can take like incredible winds. And they look like a regular fucking house. It's not like they're space houses, like they're built like a fucking, like a like a, a wind turbine or something like that. No, it's they're normal houses, but they're just really robust. And these people all made it through, Yeah, which is pretty and, wild. And, and, and Joe, I think it, it emphasizes something. We know how to fix many of these problems. And, and if you just disregard the, uh, the solar power, uh, which, of course, kept them powered, uh, but there's many other ways you could have done that with, right. with batteries but as well. But that's a great way, though. Oh, oh right? absolutely. But the main point is... You should have better regulation for houses if you want to all the, most houses to survive. Yes. This is very, very cheap. You know, uh, 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 there's a good study for Hurricane Sandy and also for Hurricane Andrew back in 92. Had there been better uh, regulation, so you just had clamps, for instance, on roofs, you know, these cost, what, $5 or something? You could have avoided half of all the damage. Because the roofs peel off. Yeah. This is very, very simple stuff. And and so, again, because we're so worried about one thing, namely climate change, and saying, oh, my God, we got to go to electric cars and stop using fossil fuels and all this other stuff. No, actually, you need to have clamps. Right. right, and and this is this is the kind of conversation that we that we have a very hard time getting around to. That just like we talk, start started off talking about with plastics, a lot of the solutions are not they're not nearly as comforting, but they're just much simpler, much cheaper, much more effective. So, what is the solution in terms of reducing our carbon footprint without destroying the economy? Well, so I think first of all, we need to get rid of the panic because panic is just a really, really bad way of dealing. But with it's issues. a really good way to get people to vo- to vote, and yes. it's a really good way to get people to donate money to your party. Yes, yes. <laughs> but it also leads to us all, you know, just screaming, running around, screaming, 
uh, screaming. Uh, could I, because I wanted to show you this, that the progress is actually just slightly delayed. So if I could just okay, show, you, yes. show you the uh, uh, the B, uh, uh, the B8. This is because of climate change. The, uh, our progress is slightly delayed, you're saying? Yes, yes. And this I just is, wanted um, to show. So this is malaria death. Since 1900 until 2060, uh, this is obviously a prediction for the last uh, uh, from 2020. This is the World Health Organization estimating what will happen with global warming. You've heard this story, right? That no, I haven't heard that okay, everyone's going to die of malaria because of uh, global warming. There's going to be more places where malaria can survive, and that's going to give us all malaria. Right, makes sense. And and there is some truth to this. So what you see here is that you will actually with climate you will actually have slightly higher levels of malaria deaths than if there was no climate change. So what we're looking at for po folks who are just listening, there is a really high line in the 1900s, and it's at, uh, it goes from 0 to 200. The, the, the line is almost at 200 in the 1900, early 1900s, and it drops all the way down to looks, what looks like 2 in 2060. And it's pretty stable from like 2040 to 2060. And f from that point, and it's below what it is now, by the way, yeah. but that point above it with climate is maybe two and a half. Yeah. It's, it's on top of the line. It's like touching the line. So it's a very, very small number. Not that it's good for people no. to die of malaria. And, and what this tells you is they're right when they come out and tell you there's going to be more malaria with global warming. But how much more? But, yeah, but you're missing the greater picture, which is, look, things are going to be a lot better, but slightly slower a lot better. And could that be mitigated with yeah. malaria medication? Of course it could. Of course right. it could. So if you actually care about malaria, your right answer is not to say we got to you know change the entire growth engine of the world and stop using fossil fuels. No, the right answer is to make sure that people get malaria medication, that yeah. they get bed nets. The, right. There's a lot, a lot of these simple things. Remember, this does not mean that we shouldn't also try to fix global warming. We're, we're, you know, we're a smart species. We can walk right. and chew gum at the same time. But we seem to almost entirely just go to the straight answer. Whatever the problem is, the answer is to cut carbon emissions. And that's often not the best or the most effective way to help people first. There, there are some real ironies. One of the, one of the crazy ones is coal-fired plants powering Teslas. <laughs> that is one of the wildest trade-offs that we make and that happens every day in this country someone is getting into their tesla thinking they're doing a really good job yep. and the electricity to power that tesla is from a coal-fired plant it's bananas yep. and a lot of that could be avoided with nuclear yep. the problem with nuclear is if it fucks up you ruin that spot for a long time True. That's but what scares people. They're, they're, but that's the initial yeah. applications of, of nuclear, like Fukushima. They didn't have enough fail-safes. Like, these were older plants. And they think that they can mitigate a lot of those problems with newer plants, and there's even yeah. designs for newer plants. They can actually safely shut down, right? Isn't yeah, I mean, they, they, they should all be able to safely set, shut down, but clearly sure that's true. Fukushima was not well enough designed because they basically put them in a place where the backup generators could be hit by uh, yeah. uh, 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 that one's nuts. But uh, even in that one, I don't believe very many people wave. died from no, Fukushima. No, nobody died. Uh, so some people died because you evacuated everybody. Uh, but you know, it was really not a r big risk. But it was but, a big but, risk to the ocean, right? Isn't there like a, well, a significant no, that was problem a with very very small bit? Really? Yeah. I thought it was spilling over into the ocean. There's yes. radioactive oh, water in the ocean. It did. But again, remember. 
the Pacific Ocean is a very, very large, and there's so a lot of natural. Enough, yeah, so and there's a lot of natural radiation, and almost everywhere in the world. Right? I mean, mm -hmm. most people don't get the idea that that your the, your vast exposure of uh, radiation comes from uh, living in a in a stone house. Uh, so if you have like uh, 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 bricks, like a brownstone in New yeah. York, yeah, because uh, uh, most most stone has natural uh, uh, radiation. But it's not so a negative radiation. It's, it's not a terrible one. By, by no means, this is not, you know, don't, don't freak out again. Right. But the whole point here is to recognize that we don't, we don't have a good sense of proportion of what's the risks that we're really right. uh, exposing ourselves to. The, the main issue with, with nuclear, and this, of course, is why we're not getting lots and lots of nuclear, is that nuclear is incredibly expensive right now. So mm. new nuclear power plants of the current third generation just cost a lot of money. So they're actually more expensive than you know going to solar and wind, and that's really why we're not building a lot of them. How much more expensive? So, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, so you know, some of the new ones that are being done in, in uh, France and, and Finland and in the UK uh, have ended up being you know two to four times more expensive than they were planned, and so they're easily you know sort of two, three times more expensive. Oh, more uh, than they were planned to be. Yeah, yes. And so they go way over budget, and the total cost of the uh, electricity they'll produce uh, could easily be two or three times the cheapest uh, electricity you can get. How much of that is fraud? I don't know. Because <laughs> whenever they have construction that goes way over, I think about the big dig in Boston. Yeah. Do you know about that? No. The big dig was uh, a thing that was going on when I was a kid, and a bunch of people went to jail. <laughs> they, they were, <laughs> so we can hear they where were it's going at least. Super yeah. slow playing the the digging this tunnel because they didn't want the jobs to go away. Right. And uh, they did a terrible job. It took forever. It was I think it, they called it one of the most co corrupt construction projects in the history of the United States. Hmm. And, and that's uh, saying something. It finished more than 10 years after it was supposed to be no, finished. No. Like, I already moved out of Boston. But I came back like many, many years later. I'm like, this thing's still around? They're still doing this? $14.8 billion later, the Big Dig finally complete. When the clock runs out on 2007, construction of the Big Dig, the nation's most complex and costliest highway project, will officially come to an end. They were doing that when I was living in there in the 1980s. Wow. They were working That's on it. Wild. They finished it in 2007. Yeah. So what is the, like, it was super corrupt, right? Didn't a bunch of people go to jail? I'm not saying that the people that are making the nuclear power plants are doing the same thing. Well, it started at $2.6 and ended up at 14.8. Wow. Whoa. <laughs> but I think it, 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 it tells a different story. Certainly for Holy shit, that's so much money. Yeah. Certainly for nuclear, uh, what happens is that you want you know one more sale, fail safe and then one more fail safe and right. then the they keep on you know changing the rules and making the regulations so it's going to be even harder. And again, mm. that's that's not a bad thing. It sounds like a good thing. Fail safe sounds good. Yes, but you also want to have a sense of well, how safe are we going to be here compared to all the other stuff that is also risky. We mm -hmm. constantly make trade-offs. Right, we and, should and not pay attention to this, but no. I see what you're saying. We should give equal focus to all these other problems that the world has. Yeah. And that that's not what we do. We so, we focus on one thing. So you asked me what what should we say to these guys that uh, you know, glue themselves to famous paintings. Uh, and I think first it is to Get them to realize this they is not the end of the coal work. mine. This is That's not the end. No, I, for that, a year. I, I would never for ask that of anyone. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so they they should realize this is not the end of the world, right. and I think that would take away a lot of this. Oh my God, we got to do something right now, right. and then we can start talking about okay, how do you fix things smartly? Well, you don't fix getting rid of fossil fuels by telling everyone. I'm sorry. 
Would you mind being a little poor and a little colder and not be able to drive? Would that be okay with you? That, that, you know, we, we just don't, you don't win right. elections that way. You don't actually get things done. The way you fix problems is through innovation. So, you know, if you think uh, back to Los Angeles in the 1950s, it was a terribly polluted place, mostly because of cars. Uh, you know, they, there's special sort of geography that may, makes mm -hmm. it very possible for all the pollution just to get stuck yeah. in that uh, in that dome in, in Los Angeles. And it's cars. And so the, the current way we think about environment is basically, all right, the solution back then would have been to tell everyone in Los Angeles, I'm sorry, could you walk instead? Right. <laughs> and no, that wouldn't have worked. What did work was the innovation of the catalytic converter. So in 1974, this guy comes up with this little thing you put on. It costs a couple hundred uh, dollars, and basically it takes away all the pollution from the car. How mm, cool is that? It's pretty cool, but not all the pollution. No, no, no. And look, but it, you can drive a lot longer and pollute a lot less, which is why Los Angeles is enormously much cleaner. It's still not clean. Here's a take but, for innovation. Here's yeah. an, an interesting piece of information. In polluted cities, some cars, like particularly uh, Jeremy Clarkson was talking about this on um, Top Gear, uh, some cars like uh, a Porsche Turbo, which is uh, like a very efficient car and has incredible air filters, and the air coming out of the exhaust is actually cleaner than the air going in. <laughs> there Make you sure go. that's true. Make sure that's true because I'd be an asshole if it's not true. But Jeremy Clarkson definitely said that. And I remember thinking, like, wow, maybe that is the solution. If we you can buy get something. a Porsche to everyone. No, not a Porsche, <laughs> but a car that's sucking in carbon. Everyone should, before they die, own one of those, though. Uh, but if you could get a, a car that is somehow or another utilizing that fuel that's in the air that's problematic, and if there's some sort of a way to extract that and convert it, maybe through some. Mm you know, unforeseen technology, convert that into energy. This sounds implausible. Does it? That, yeah. It, it sounds like it's very... So we're doing the same thing with carbon, uh, that you're trying to suck out the carbon from the atmosphere, mm -hmm. and it turns out to be very expensive. It's well, just all combustion engines require oxygen, right? Yeah. Yep. Would it be possible for a combustion engine at least to somehow work carbon neutral by pulling enough carbon out of the atmosphere that the... Whatever comes out the bag is actually not good. This okay. is what he said. Here it is. Jimmy Clarkson said, when you drive this car through a really polluted city, Los Angeles, Calcutta, I don't know what the other Harrogate. one is. Harrogate. <laughs> I think he was joking around. Something like that. The gas coming out of the exhaust pipe is less toxic than the air going into the engine. And I'm not joking. That's true. And then, this then is like a small, efficient, easy-to-use vacuum cleaner. Okay, so he's joking around about that. But is that true? Is that true? Does it say it's true, Jamie? It what does doesn't it say? say that it's true or it false. It doesn't say it's true or false. So that is his quote. Uh, well, I have seen concept cars that clean the air. I seriously doubt any car existing. Yeah, that's what this is. But, it, but mm. again, except, you know, the, you know, especially the Porsche 911. Oh, because this is bullshit. So he's saying it's bullshit. I seriously doubt any existing cars, especially the Porsche 911 Turbo, emits exhaust that is cleaner than air, even air in the most polluted cities. Here's exactly what Clarkson yeah, says. So this is, uh, this is by Autoblog. So Autoblog is calling bullshit. Which makes sense. Doesn't make sense that. No. that but but if, it was a fun story. But if it could be, is it is it an engineering issue? Is it possible that some well, so, new invention would be able to do that with the air? So, I'm essentially an economist. I'm I'm sort of a pretend economist because I'm really a political scientist. But I like to pretend I'm an economist. Why but do you what, do that? Because economists are smart people. <laughs> uh, so anyway, uh, economists would tend to say you can do anything you want if you're willing to pay the money, right? Mm -hmm. So right. we can take people to the moon. 
we could potentially take all of Austin to the moon. It would just be fantastically expensive, right? And it's not clear that you know, it'd be really cool either. They but, shouldn't take everybody to the moon. No. And, just the people with Beto signs in their lawn. Oh, there you go. <laughs> so, so fundamentally, you can do a lot of stuff, and you could also do this, but it would just be you know, incredibly expensive, meaning yes. you wouldn't have the resources to do all the other stuff you also right. want to do. Hence, this is a Porsche Turbo. This is not a, you yeah. know, a Hyundai or a Fiat. Yes. It's a very expensive car. Um, so in, in terms of what we can do now to slow the stem, like that's one of the fear-mongering things that you hear. I don't know if it's accurate, but they're always saying if we don't do this now, yeah. with every yeah. with every day that passes by, if we don't in, enact legislation, the future is doomed. Yeah. This is the thing that people keep harping on. Yeah. How much of that is accurate? That's just wrong. I mean, just wrong. if you look at the UN climate panel reports, there's nowhere they tell you this. The quote, I don't know if you remember, this was AOC and many others uh, telling us we have just 12 years left. Oh, my God. That, that was the argument that they t they asked the UN what will it take to st stick to 1.5 degrees centigrade, which is sort of an arbitrary target, right? and almost impossible, probably impossible to do. And so the UN said, if you want to do this almost impossible, you have to do everything before 2030, which was right. then 12 years away. Right. That's where the 12-year time limit come from. It's basically saying, if you want to do something incredibly stupid and incredibly expensive, you only have 12 years left. But that's not what the UN is telling us. We should s switch and we should cut carbon emissions, but there are much, much smarter ways to do this. So the, perhaps the most obvious one is what the US did back from late 2000s, which was fracking. Yeah, this is uh, 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 basically something that was done by uh, investment and research and development from uh, 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 George W. Bush uh, in the early 2000s, where they spent about $10 billion working with frackers to find out how do you frack uh, gas and then later on oil. And what that meant was you ended up, this was not at all meant as a climate policy. It was meant as a way to get more energy. But what it meant was you ended up getting much, much cheaper gas. And because you had much cheaper gas, you switched out coal for gas. This matters because gas is about twice as efficient. It emits half as much CO2 per unit of energy. So you basically have this situation where you made a somewhat cleaner source of energy much cheaper. And so the U.S. actually cut its emissions more over the last decade than any other country has ever done. But is there a detrimental effect on the environment because of fracking yes. that has to balance that out? And there, there is. How so, much of an impact is that? So there's... Thank you for asking. So there's a uh, there's a study that tries to uh, look at what all the damages and all the benefits from fracking is. Uh, and so they find the total damage from fracking is in the order of $25 billion, mostly from air pollution. Uh, air pollution? Of, yes. Interesting. So, so does that negate the air pollution that it saves? No, no. So this is local air pollution, and this is mostly from you know the increased amount of uh, emissions, especially of methane, but also just because you have lots of construction going on where you do the uh, the fracking, and because fracking is a very rapid turnover, you need a lot of wells. So there's a total cost, environmental cost, of about twenty five billion dollars. That's not nothing, absolutely per year, but the benefit of fracking to the U.S. Uh, is estimated by the uh, uh, one of the Federal Reserve. Uh, right, but if estimates. I can push back against that, the, the yes, real can problem. I, can I just say? Yeah, please so, do. So, sorry. So it's a uh, hundred and eighty billion dollars in increased. 
growth for the U.S. So you get $180 billion, but you also have environmental problems of $25 billion. Well, shouldn't we be doing everything possible to mitigate the amount of environmental problems? And when you're talking about just straight money, how much money is it worth to pollute the rivers and pollute the streams and pollute the air? I would say that's not a benefit at all. That benefit in terms of like the negative impact of pollution and then trying to clean up that pollution is catastrophic. It's very difficult and sometimes impossible. When you're talking about polluting ancient waterways, that scares the shit out of people, hmm. including me. Yep. Especially people that like to go outside and do outdoor activities and go camping and hiking and yes. shit. They get terrified by the idea of fracking, destroying the rivers, and that has happened before, right? Sure. Uh, and and look again. Uh, most of the impact was air pollution, but there's also some water pollution, and that that is definitely a, a, an issue. Again, we have to remember that but running the current of uh, 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 energy system that we have in the U.S. causes lots of pollution, and it causes lots of benefits, and we make those trade-offs all the time. Right, we but have, if we can contain seen, it to the areas that it's already at, that would be more efficient and, than spreading it out to our rivers. And we have done that. Right. Remember, air pollution, uh, 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 certainly in the U.S., has come, come down about 90% over the last 30 years. Uh, so because of you know uh, the Clean, uh, Clean yeah. Air Act and many others, we've actually dramatically reduced air pollution. And we know how to do that. You can absolutely regulate uh, uh, fracking better, and you can decide that you want to have less air pollution. But it is a trade-off in the sense of saying how much more opportunity will you have, and then you also actually cut carbon emissions, which is what the U.S. has done more than any other country, uh, versus how much uh, do you want, for instance, less air pollution. But for the people that live around those areas where they're fracking, yeah. that's not a good no. relationship. Al- although a lot of these guys, this is one of the reasons why fracking is taken off in the U.S. and not ever, uh, anywhere else, because in the U.S., you own your own mineral rights, right? So the guys who own the land, are the ones who typically get most of the, or not most of the benefit, but a substantial benefit of the fracking. That's not true in Europe, which is why everybody then gets annoyed about the air pollution. But if you get air pollution, but you also get like $200,000, many people will say, hmm, I like that. Now, they probably like to have less air pollution. Doesn't RuPaul have like some crazy ranch where they extract natural resources? I remember people reading about that going, wait, what? There you go with the Mountain Dew. Get yes. excited. First Mountain Dew of the day. It is. Um, are cigars bad for the environment? Uh, they're certainly bad for you. No. <laughs> what about George Burns? He lived forever. Do you think they're bad for you? I'm pretty sure we know that. Yeah. You think they're worse for you than Mountain Dew? I'm certainly You're hoping so. sucking right? on Mountain I'm, Dew, I'm, talking I'm, to me about yes. cigars. Yes. Cigars are natural tobacco leaves, so you don't even inhale. You just puff on it. Okay. I, I don't think you possi- – possibly we should have a little warning st- sticker that don't on, take medical advice from this man. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Hold up. Non-COVID content. RuPaul was just on NPR Fresh Air and shared that he and his partner own 60,000 acres in Wyoming and they lease mineral rights and sell water to oil companies. Okay. Uh, Terry Gross did not follow up with one question about the fact that RuPaul is fracking. Oh, so it is fracking. We found that RuPaul, is that true? Ru's partner, it is true? Australian rancher George Labar owns seven parcels of land in Wyoming, totaling some 66,000 acres, Labar's company. Labar Ranch leases that land to at least three oil companies. Uh, Anna Darko, EP, Onshore, Chesapeake, operating an Anschultz Oil Company, using Frack Tracker, 
we looked at just 10,000 of those acres and found more than 35 active oil and gas wells. And but oil, then they also say all oil and gas drilling is bad. All oil all and gas yeah. drilling is there bad. You hear me, Bjorn? <laughs> this is a fact. <laughs> this is a fact. It's on Gizmodo, you son of a bitch. Uh, <laughs> all oil and gas drilling is bad, but these three companies are no mom-and-pop shops. Chesapeake Energy was a pioneer of the drilling method early in the nation's fracking boom. It was the second most active drilling company in the nation, closely followed by Anadarko. And Anschultz owner, uh, Philippe Frederick Anschultz, made billions from fossil fuel extraction that earned him the 41st spot on the Forbes 400. Wow, interesting. Well, RuPaul is fabulous. Go get it. Get that money. (laughs) Um, So if if it's your land, if it's your land, do you have the right to uh, pollute the rivers and streams? That's the question because these all have trickle-down effects. Like that water is connected to other waterways. And And we should have better regulation. We have gotten a lot better regulation. But I was simply trying to get you a sense of, you know, when you do anything in the world, it has negative impacts and positive impacts. I get You're a glass half-full guy. No, I'm a glass that you need to. (laughs) No, I'm not. not, I can't carry on that metaphor. Okay, you don't have to. (laughs) I I put you down a dark road. The... um, the idea behind it is there's a trade-off with yeah. everything you do. I mean, that's what Thomas Sowell said that, right? And, there's no solutions. There's trade-offs. Yeah. And, and what, what, again, you know, we talked about what should we t- say to these guys that are gluing themselves on, on paintings. Uh, and not only should you not be, you know, scared, witless, you should think of this as a problem. But then you also need to find out what actually works. Remember, Germany has spent half, you know, Germany is for many people sort of this amazing green wonder land. Yeah. Uh, But no, they've gone from 84% fossil fuels to now 77% fossil fuels. And they spent half a trillion dollars trying to achieve that. That's not how you do these things. That's not how you really, you know, show yourself to the world and say, we're really amazing. Is that a political posturing thing where they put policies in place because those policies are what the people have been sort of at least programmed by fear-mongering to expect and want from their politicians? It's it's partly that. I mean, obviously, it's good politics because a lot of people get reelected saying, I'm going to save your world and elect me, and then I'm going to put up some more solar panels. But the problem is, it's incredibly expensive way of achieving almost nothing. And that's why, you know, if you look at what fracking has done, you know, fracking is sort of a dirty word. Do you work for big fracking? No, this I son don't. of a bitch works I for big fracking. But I simply point out that fracking, more than anything else, has cut carbon emissions dramatically because you've given an alternative to coal, which not only emits a lot of CO2, but also kills a lot of pe- people through uh, uh, air pollution. And you can now do a lot less. Imagine if we could make China frack, India frack. Europe would be good to frack as well. Because we could actually get all of these countries to switch away from coal towards gas. Now, this is not the whole solution, but it has the beauty of being cheaper so that you don't actually have to go to all these summits where everybody promises stuff and then don't do it. But you would actually have people do what's in their own private interest. Namely, but that's an uncomfortable that's trade-off cheaper. to me, this idea yeah. of uh, exploiting the environment that way, because that's what it is. It's like if you're going to agree to pollute a certain amount of the water, a certain amount of the land, is there any solution to extract that pollution? And is that even feasible or possible? Of course. I mean, look. But is that? Yeah. I mean, Because if it's not, I don't think that should even be considered. I I understand that our emissions are an important issue, but our emissions are where they are now. For a trade-off like that, 
where you decide you're going to do something that's going to definitely pollute rivers and streams. And to decide the way to, you're going to do that because it's going to reduce the effect on the environment in terms of mm. the emissions. Of the yeah. There's got to be a better way. Yes. So, look, I, I think we need to go back. And I, I, I would love to look at the study again. Uh, so the vast majority is air pollution. That's simply just that you have elevated levels where you, you know, near the uh, uh, near the fracking. This places. is from C- this is pollution from fracking. Yes. Air pollution. So uh, the, the and water it's localized. pollution. It's it's localized and it's mostly the people who are also getting the benefits. That's why uh, you know uh, many people would accept this this sort of trade off. Uh, absolutely, we should not have you know you've, you're sort of switching over to this other place where we say, but what if it you know uh, dramatically damaged rivers downstream and you know uh, uh, cultural pace and all that stuff? That's much more regulatable. That's the kind of thing where you just simply say you can't do this. We had a lot of this impact in the early part of uh, fracking where just everybody did it. It was sort of you know wild west for everything. Uh, but you can regulate a lot of this, and that's why I think it's a fairly small part of it. But uh, again, How I don't... can you regulate unseen water pollution? So if you are the, – the method that they utilize in fracking is they drill holes and then they force liquids yep. into these holes – and these liquids are filled with chemicals, and somehow or another there's a process, and they use that to extract it. Yep. So how are they doing that, and how could you possibly regulate that if you're not even seeing where it's so, going? So, like, would you so, have the way, to... so the way you regulated it was to get rid of, uh, of the most dangerous parts of those chemicals. As I understand it, there's very little dangerous now, the chemicals that you put in, and then also have the overflow so you, know, you actually get the wastewater out and that you keep that or you treat that before you release it back. This is, is that possible to do if they're yeah. pumping it into the earth? No, no, you pump it out again. You, know, you, you pump it, it out again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so it's it's not you're you're not leaving it down there. The pollution that's also why it gets back into the environment. The pollution typically came the water pollution that you're thinking of. I think mostly surface. came from from yes from people taking this uh, uh, this wastewater when it comes back up again and then just letting it you know seep in putting it in places mm. where it wasn't quite where you know if it rained a lot it would just overflow or that kind of thing and th- you know this is something that we know very well how to do if you have yes there are always people who will cheat and stuff that's why you need some sort of uh, 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 follow up as well and you probably also want to have bigger companies doing this because they you know they follow standard procedure but this is fairly simple to manage, if you will. That's what the EPA does in a lot of different Did you ever see the uh, documentary Gasland? Yeah. What did you think about that documentary? So my my two cents in that was that it uh, you know it's a good thing to point out that there is a, a that there is a real issue here uh, when you can con, uh, 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 contrast it with what most of the actual operators said were the problems. I think it was somewhat misleading and it was certainly you know uh, alarmist. Uh, but again, yeah, I, I think it's good that we get this, get these stories out there. But we need to keep a sense of perspective. What about the people whose water was on fire? Oh, God. and it was a great, <laughs> it was a great uh, uh, picture. Yeah, uh, and and very clearly, th- there were some things, some of these things that needed to get regulated, and they now have. They have. So, they fixed yeah, it. It's yeah. all done. All better. Well, it's certainly a lot better. That, this is what uh, you know, the Environmental you, Defense Fund and many others are, are saying as well. Do you know what the chemicals were that were really dangerous that they were using that they stopped using? No. I, I mean, I've, I kind of know. I've read it, but I can't remember. But no. th- So there's no damage whatsoever to the waterways that are under the ground if they're pumping all this toxic chemicals in there? No, it, because they're, they're pumping them way further down than where aquifers typically are. Okay. And they pump them into places that have ha- held 
hydrocarbons. That's why they're there for you know millions of years. So and they're that's not going to get to yeah. really. So they can extract basically everything they put down yeah. there. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's better. Um, but this idea that we should accept some amount of water pollution and river pollution scares the shit out of me because hmm. that's like one of the few amazing things about this country is that there are still unspoiled natural habitats and to, to s- s- fuck those up yeah, in the I, name I of the economy. I, yeah, I, I think <laughs> – and, and I get that point. I, I think you're sort of imagining that we're we're going to frack and then you know uh, Yellowstone goes down in flames kind of thing. No, I'm, I'm uh, saying and, e- and, even for local areas. Imagine if you're a person who like your family's always gone down to this river. It's near your house and it's no. a, a source of recreation for everybody. Now you can't go in there because it's polluted. Yeah, I, I – so again – I don't know this well enough, but it's not my understanding that we're anywhere near that situation. It would be something that you could measure elevated levels of some uh, uh, constituents. That would be it. See if you can Google what the – there was one river that I think that they were talking about in that documentary that that got polluted directly because of fracking and the chemicals released from fracking. And then it was really damaging. You know, that scares the shit out of people mm. when they start talking about extracting oil near, like, where salmon spawn and stuff like that, yeah, you yeah, know? Yep. That, I mean, we got to be really careful about doing stuff like that just to boost the economy. That seems like a short-sighted thing that's going to cost us more money in the long run if ultimately it does lead to be not just more money, but, like, you're going to have these unfixable areas of pollution. Yeah, I, I think— I think this is way exaggerated. What uh, you know, the the point that I try to make was when you do these estimates, and that's that's why I think uh, economics actually have a good you know sort of contribution. Mm-hmm. They tell you that when you look at all the disbenefits from fracking, those are significant. There's that was a what net I was positive. Saying, uh, that's twenty five billion dollars. That means that there will be some people who will be more exposed to air pollution, which will lead to some diseases. And and that's the net worth of which is you know in the order of twenty five billion dollars. It's a lot of other things, and also some of these waterway things. So that's uh, people that are working on the fracking mines and the working in the. It could in also those be areas. just people who are there who live there. Well, that sucks if you're there and oh, you. Oh, absolutely. You don't frack. Yeah. And you have and, to. And and you know, but 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 I think if you look at any other thing, so if you look at the fact that we have uh, you know roads in the U.S., they kill forty thousand people every year. You mean car accidents? Yeah. Yeah. It, and and you know there's there's a very simple way to avoid that. It's Don't setting the uh, speed limit at three miles an hour. Mm, good call. <laughs> and and you know we make that trade off and we say, yeah. look, you can have a sensible conversation. Should it be fifty five or seventy five? And th- that's a real conversation about how much faster do I get home versus how many more people die. Right. But we none of us would be willing to say it's going to be three miles an hour. Right. And I think that's the conversation that we need to have. Yeah, that's a that's kind of a different conversation. Seeing, my Delaware's rivers and streams are the most polluted in the U.S. A new report says, and is this directly because of fracking? Well, that's what I was trying to figure out. So I just found another article that kind of contradicts that specifically and said it's uh, particular right here. So it's been cleaned up and it's now today like the, one of the top water quality success stories. Oh, okay. Well, when was the other article written? This is from NewJersey.gov, and mm-hmm. the other one was also this year. It's a report from another, like PBS. So news station wrote this, and this is also from this year. So which one is saying this is where you got to? So can can I just say, and, yeah. and you get this a lot. I I don't know this particular thing, but what is what we know is that all pollution levels have been going down in the U.S. So it could actually both be true that everything is getting cleaner 
but Delaware's rivers are getting less, more clean. Do you see what I mean? They, mm-hmm. They're getting cleaner, slower. Cleaner, slower. Right. So even though it's one of the most polluted, it's one of the most polluted in Comparison relation. with all the other very, very clean rivers. Mm. And again, you know, this is not untrue. And, and certainly we want our environment to be cleaner rather than <laughs> dirtier. There's no doubt about that. But it's just that we can't have this idea of saying we, we won't accept any damage anywhere. Because then we end up, and this, of course, is what happens to uh, in, in many areas, we end up sending all our pollution to China and India and elsewhere and feel all virtuous about it. We do? How do we do that? So, you know, uh, there's a good chance. No, you have a Tesla, right? So that, that's possibly produced here. But most electric cars, their batteries are produced in China. Mm. Uh, so, you know, all the pollution uh, uh, went in over in China, and then we drive around and feel virtuous about them. The, constru- the you mean involved in the construction yes, of the car? Yes, yes, and yeah. and of course that's true for everything else. You know, most of the iPhones. stuff. I I don't know how much of the stuff in here, but probably a lot of it is from China. Uh, God damn you know, it! And, and it, just like everyone else, it's not a you. There's anything wrong with right? But that's that's just how uh, we we uh, put up our world. So we actually can feel very virtuous about ourselves and make everything cleaner, but then just have uh, the air pollution and all the other uh, pollution impacts somewhere else. Now, when you look at the overall landscape of proposed improvements and uh, and the impact that it'll have on the environment, what stands out to you? Like, what do you think is things that people are talking about in terms of uh, helping the environment and reducing our carbon footprint? Like, what, what makes sense? So I'll tell you one thing that doesn't, then one thing that okay. does, right? Sure. So. If you look at a lot of these things, oh, I'm not going to do this or I'm not going to do that. I'm, I'm actually a vegetarian. Uh, How dare you? Yes, yeah, sorry about that. I knew it. More, moral Works choice. for big fracking and he's a vegetarian. <laughs> this but, fucking guy. But people <laughs> people will tell you that you know going vegetarian is a great thing for the planet. Uh, but actually, it's a fairly small impact overall. Uh, so you know, they'll tell you that it'll reduce your carbon footprint by 50%. What they don't tell you, it's your food impact, your food footprint, which is a very small part of your total impact. So we're talking about 4% or thereabouts. And then remember also being vegetarian is cheaper. So that actually means you have more money and you're going to spend that on you know, a trip to Mexico or something. So it actually turns out that when you take into account that people are going to spend the rest of their money on something else, it probably reduces your emissions by 2%. When people talk about emissions and vegetarianism, do they take into account the difference in monocrop agriculture versus regenerative agriculture? Like you can buy food. Um, we had Will Harris from White Oak Pastures and who has this very sophisticated regenerative farm that he converted his family's industrialized farm over a period of 20 years. Amazing story. Really interesting guy. Um, but doing so has basically – he they take out more carbon than they put out into the environment. Everything is natural. They don't use any pesticides or herbicides. Everything is done the way like nature intended. They've essentially recreated nature in a controlled environment in terms of like utilizing the manure and the chicken shit and the chickens roam around and the pigs root around and all these animals live as if they're supposed to live, like, like in, normally in the wild. And because of that, his water that runs off into the river is so noticeably different than the Hmm. water of his next-door neighbor. It's stunning. His next-door neighbor runs a traditional industrialized farm. And when you see their property line, when the water runs off, his is clear, and then it hits where the neighbor's property is, and it turns brown, like instantly. There's a literal divide line 
in the river. It's crazy to see. So that's something you have to take into account mm. when you think about vegetarianism. Like, how are you getting your vegetables? Mm. Are you getting it from a place like White Oaks Pastures that raises everything in a regenerative way? So it's natural. There's no pesticides or herbicides. No poison at all is getting leaked into the water supply. Or are you buying your vegetables at, you know, regular supermarket yep. and they're, you know, oh, it's corn. Great. Corn's good for you. But yeah. meanwhile, you're contributing to this fucking crazy uh, eco devastation on this river, and you don't even think you are. Hmm. So, uh, so the the numbers I showed you were the ones that are based on how we actually produce, and that's by far mostly uh, what that by other far. guy does. Yeah, by yeah. far mostly um, doing it industrialized. So, so yeah. there, there, you have to be a little careful, though. Uh, so, uh, a lot of farms that say, you know, for instance, they're organic and they they don't use pesticides and they uh, don't use uh, artificial fertilizer and all that stuff. Uh, they basically get a lot of their uh, fertilizer from other farms that are not, because otherwise you can't make it run around. Uh, a, a, a curious thing that I think most people don't recognize. Say that again? So there's not enough natural fertilizer in the world to keep 8 billion people fed. Mm. There's actually only enough natural fertilizer to keep 4 billion people fed. But so, isn't that under current farming models? Well, you, it's just simply a question of nitrogen. There's just not enough nitrogen in the world to make it run around. That's why you have to have the other uh, four billion people or half of every person uh, uh, fed with uh, uh, with uh, fertilizer that comes farming. that basically comes from uh, from uh, natural gas. And so when people say, "Oh, I have this very very nice uh, environmental farm," it often means that they're actually importing basically feces from other farms that have been grown with uh, uh, artificial fertilizer. I don't necessarily think he does that. that look, I don't know White this Oaks particular- pastures, But yeah. it's a, not that big of a farm no. in terms of like the, the amount the, of humans. Do the, you remember what he said, like the amount of humans he could feed with his farm? The, it, it's not no. enormous. No. And the, and the point is, we just can't make this happen for everyone, which is one of the things I, you know, I, when people go buy organic and all that stuff, it's great you know, it, because it makes feel, people feel really virtuous. Uh, but the point is, we just couldn't do it, all of us. Yeah. Right. But for the humans that do it, they are having a smaller impact, which is, is doing something to make them feel better. It certainly if you really are buying to make food them, from them, White Oaks Pastures, yes. if that's your sole source of food for your family, yes, you 100% are contributing less to the carbon footprint in but, comparison to buying stuff from that farm that's leaking into the river. No, not the—well, it depends on whether you're talking about the carbon footprint. Not the carbon footprint. They, they typically emit as, about as much uh, uh, organic farms. Again, I, I don't know this particular farm. Uh, How but is I know that possible, though? If they're because they're much less effective. And so they use a lot more land to produce the same amount of food. And so what is the carbon footprint coming from machines that they use? Well, it both comes from the uh, uh, from methane that leaks from the land, from the, uh, uh, from the inputs that go into uh, the individual uh, uh, animals. It depends also a lot on what kind of animals it is uh, and what kind of uh, grains or whatever it is that you're producing. Uh, but the point is that overall, when you do these life cycle analyses, you get that they have about the same in per, per, uh, per pound of, of uh, food. Really? Even yeah. a regenerative farm? Well, again, I don't know this I particular farm. Th I so. think the way he was describing it, like he was very proud of the fact that it's essentially below carbon neutral. That mm. it's actually contributing, it's like taking out carbon from yep. the, the way yep. they grow their food to the way they utilize the manure and the way they feed the animals. 
And that's that's impressive because you can't. I, and again, I don't know how you do that because you can't. Uh, you can you can certainly keep set some land aside and mm-hmm. make sure you generate more and more carbon in that storage area for for a while. But you can't keep it uh, keep doing that. Look at this. As a result, White Oak Pastures has a carbon footprint 111 percent lower than conventional beef. Yep. White Oak Pastures sequestered 919 tons of CO2 in the soil with the help of plants and compost. Um, that's like switching 31,679 incandescent light bulbs to LED. And so it shows uh, white oak pastures versus other proteins, like how, how they're yep. grown in other places. So you see conventional beef, which is like a huge uh, amount of carbon, plus 33. White oak pastures, it gets to them, their beef is negative 3.5. Yeah. So the only way that you can sequester CO2 on land is by not having it be productive. You need to have it, you know, uh, you need to basically have it uh, uh, build up uh, carbon dioxide in the, in the, uh, sorry, carbon. In but the, he's talking in about like compost low. and manure extracting that. Yeah, but you can't use it because if you use it, then you emit it again. We store more carbon in the soil than our cows emit during their lives. Hmm. And so pounds of CO2 for every pound of white oak pastures beef produced. Like this seems to contradict what you're saying. And and look, I I don't know how this works. Uh, uh, I'm I'm talking about how regular organic farms work, and there's been lots of studies done on that. Mm-hmm. And 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 the thing I'm I'm a little worried about here is that it it doesn't seem reasonable to me that you can actually keep this up. You can certainly do it for a, for a, for a few short years where you build up your carbon uh, uh, storage in your in your land, but eventually you have to either use it productively or keep it uh, uh, fenced off. I don't understand what you're saying. Oh. Why? Why would he have to do that if he's rotating the crops and rotating where the animals go and moving them around? And well, but you know, so if if you if you plant a forest, so that's the typical sort of way you think about this, right? You you put up a forest, you put up small saplings, they grow bigger and bigger. They store a lot of carbon. They both store it in the in the crown, but also in the root material. Mm-hmm. But eventually, they've grown full, and then they can't store anymore, and then you just have to keep it there. If you cut them down, then obviously you now release all the CO2 again. Mm-hmm. And what they're doing, as I understand it, is that they're basically building it up in their ground. So they're having you know, more roots in there, more stuff in there. But if you don't release it, uh, if you don't use it, if you don't grow on it, you you have to sorry you have to keep not growing on it in order to keep it stored away. Well, they're growing – it's pastures, so they have grass growing there. That's that's like the main thing that these cows are eating. They're okay, all white. Right. Yes. They're all grass okay. fed. No, I get that. Yes. So that's how they're doing okay. it. Okay. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Sorry, I I was thinking about intensive uh, 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 farm. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Yeah. So his method, I think the the only knock on it would be, if you want to have a jack in the box on every corner and you want cheap beef to feed people everywhere, you probably can't do it that way. And and if you want to. Feed everyone, but you his argument was that, that we way. really shouldn't be eating that way anyway. But and that's all... also that's also a fair point. Yeah, but yeah. So the, the the main the main point comes back to saying we can't do this for everyone, and that was that was the main point I was trying to make. That we we have this idea of saying we can all go organic. No, you know, a few people can go organic and feel very comfortable about it, but there's just not enough nitrogen for everyone to do this. Mm. And and so that was the answer that I wanted to say. You know, don't think that these are these sort of cheap, simple things where you where you virtue signal is how you're really going to switch. The way you're going to switch, the way we're actually going to fix climate change, 
is by focusing on technology. So you mentioned one of them, nuclear. You know, if we could imagine that we could actually get fourth-generation nuclear in some way to be incredibly cheap and safe, that could solve a very large part of it. Imagine if you come up with a technology that's cheaper than coal and gas and all that. Everyone is, is going to switch, not just because they're rich, well-meaning Americans, but also the Chinese, the Indians, the Africans, everybody else. So that will basically generate a lot of cheap energy that's both good for economic growth and will cut carbon emissions dramatically. Now, remember, this is not the only thing you need because you can't just run – well, you possibly can run most of the world in electricity, but we don't right now. Right now, only about 20 uh, percent uh, is electricity. The rest of energy is industrial processes, heating, uh, transport, all these other things that are much, much harder uh, to uh, to switch out. So obviously, also steel and coal. Sorry, steel and uh, cement and so on. So there's a lot of issues that still remain, but the technology point still remains. If we can come up with this technology that's cheaper than fossil fuels and does not emit CO2, we're done. Now, if we don't do this, and if we give in to uh climate fear, which is what a lot of people are using. It seems, if you want to be cynical, it seems like a political ploy. Why would they want to do that? What do you think the motivation is of not having a balanced, nuanced perspective and expressing a balanced, nuanced perspective to people where you could explain things the way you're, you're explaining them? There's an economic impact to this. There's a trade-off to that. Here's why it's better for actually better for the atmosphere overall if we do it this way. And the solution seems to be in technology, and it's not into halting all use of fossil fuels immediately, which would be devastating to the economy. And ultimately, when the economy goes, it's devastating to almost Everyone. all aspects yeah. of our civilization. Yeah. That's that's the very unfortunate reality of life, right? Yeah. So, what what have you ever had a debate with someone about this? Oh gosh, yes. Climate fanatic. Oh yeah, yeah. I have lots of those debates. How do those go? So, I, my my sense is that these guys are really well intentioned. So they you know they really want sure. to do good. Uh, it's it's not sort of an evil ploy or anything, but they seem to believe that you know just by wishing we can somehow make it come true, uh, and and I think a lot of the conversation that you know so when you're starting to see what what is it going to cost to go net zero, for instance, a lot of people are talking about we should go net zero. You know, Biden, President Biden is talking about that. Uh, this will be fantastically costly, and that's what all these studies show. So McKinsey shows it's going to cost nearly $6 trillion every year for the world. Uh, that's two-thirds of the total global tax intake. So you know, basically imagine that two-thirds of everything the U.S. government spends now would have to go to net zero. Well, I think you said something that that's very important, too. You said the world. And I think it's very unreasonable to assume that the rest of the world would take on this economic burden the way we're willing to take it on for the environment. Yeah. And that, in fact, there are countries that are not interested at all in releasing less carbon. They're interested in economically becoming more and more powerful and spreading their wings. And and just lifting their populations yes, out of poverty. Lifting their right? popul and so, also becoming more military, you know, more well, powerful militarily. I'm, and, yeah, yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm, look, China is not uh, uh, just a good guy uh, nation by any means, but you under I can understand them. And I can understand why, you know, India... And Africa wants to be a little bit like China. Remember, China has basically lifted, what, almost a billion people out of poverty. That's an amazing achievement. And, you know, if you lived in China or you lived in India, you would want to do the same. Sure. So, so, but at the, then at what cost? Yes. Yeah. And and so the, the reality is even if just the U.S. tried to go net zero, 
there's a new study in, in uh, Nature magazine that estimated that the cost per person, I actually have that graph so we can, we can show that as well. Uh, so the cost per person would be phenomenal. Uh, well, it'd be nice if I could find it, but, oh, there it is. Uh, so it's uh, uh, number 28 in uh, A. So the, the cost of reducing emissions, 80%. This is per person per year in the U.S. by mid-century. bucks. Well, that's, that's almost entire net zero, and they, they, the modelers say they're not sure whether this is true, but it's certainly a big number. But even if you just went 80% towards the, uh, the Biden uh, promise, it would cost more than $5,000 per person per year. Just yeah. get Bill Gates to pay for it. <laughs> with, I don't get it. What's the problem? Got a lot of money. Uh, get his wife. Only she's very philanthropically uh, inclined. Ha get half a year. Mackenzie or Bezos. Yeah. She's got a lot of cheddar. She's putting it towards good use. But the fundamental point is, people are just not going to be willing to pay that amount of money. Well, they might be. I mean, they might assume that the government could foot the bill for this. If they can come up with so much money to send arms to Ukraine and to invade other countries and do a lot of shady shit that we don't appreciate them doing. We would think that they could fork out eleven thousand per person and per year, per year, and crank that up. What is that? What What is that all told with three hundred and how many do we have now? So this is uh, uh this is twelve percent of uh, of U.S. GDP. Jesus. Yep. That's a chunk. Yes. Um. So that's not feasible. Not not currently. No. But we can work towards something like that. That that that's, that's why we need to get get realistic and say. We're not going to do this by telling everyone you have to pay up right now. How what much? we can do is to do this innovation. We should be spending lots, lots more into innovation because innovation is incredibly cheap. Uh, so Craig Venter, do you remember him? He was the guy who cracked the human genome back in 2000. Um, he's sort of a you know, crazy smart guy. Uh, and he has this idea that he wants to grow algae, specific special uh, uh, algae on the ocean surface that basically soak up sunlight and CO2 and produce oil. Imagine that. We could grow our own you know, Saudi Arabias out on the ocean surface, and then we'd just simply harvest those. We'd process them, make oil. We could keep our entire fossil fuel economy going right now, but it would be CO2 neutral because they just soaked out the uh, CO2 out in the ocean really? surface. Would that have a detrimental effect on the ocean? Look, I'm sure that, you know, just like we've talked about before, nothing you do would have no impact. Uh, most trade-offs. Yes, everything is trade-offs, but we could potentially solve a very large part of the global warming problem at, you know, fairly low cost. We can't do it right now because right now it costs a fortune and, you know, it can't really be scaled very well. But the point is give this guy some money mm. and try to investigate it because researchers are incredibly cheap. This is how we've solved all problems. If you think, you know, do you remember those Live Aid concerts and all that stuff? Sure. And even before then, we worried a lot about, you know, Africa and it was especially India and Southeast Asia not being able to feed their own populations. And, and sort of the standard way that we think about global warming now is to tell everyone, you know, could you not eat so much and then we'll send it down to, you know, the poor Indians and the poor Africans? And, and of course that didn't work. What did work? was the Green Revolution. We basically evolved these, we innovated these new seeds that produce two or three times as much per acre. 
And that's what basically grew the world's population, uh, sorry, the world's food production dramatically. India is now uh, one of the world's, uh, it is actually the world's leading rice exporter. It's gone from a basket case to being able to feed its own population. But aren't there a lot of problems with that too, where the, the Indian farmers yes. are getting fucked over and they get connected to these seeds that they don't own and they can't reuse and they owe a giant amount of money to the companies so that provide them with the seeds there's and certainly they're going some bankrupt and there's a, a ton of suicides, suicides from these yeah. Indian farmers. So that's a pretty big trade-off. So, well, it actually turns out that there's less. Su- so there's uh, there's uh, IFPRI, uh, who's one of these uh, uh, institutions that look into uh, farmers and and farming policy. They did an estimate and found that there are fewer people that die from uh, from suicides. But it, but there's because there's a lot of farmers in India. There's a lot of farmer suicides. Uh, but but yes, there are absolutely problems in India as well. Uh, but you know, fundamentally, being in enthralled to Big uh, agro business because you have to buy more of the seeds or you have to pay more is probably a lot better than you know dying uh, from uh, from not having enough food. But are they the only two solutions? No, no. Isn't there a solution where they have a more equitable sort of uh, relationship with the people that provide them seeds and that they can both benefit from it? Seems like they're getting exploited, sure. right? So again, my 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 understanding of this is that. You can, if you if you want to, you can buy the uh, public seeds, and so India and many other countries uh, uh, provide public seeds that don't have any copyright and that you can grow, or you can buy the private property uh, seeds that grow more per acre, and so it's you know it's uh, basically a, a trade off, just like when you go to a store and you know decide between a slightly less good product which is cheaper and or a more expensive product that's It better. sounds like a creepy trade-off though. If the stuff that doesn't work as well is the stuff that you could get from the state and people are economically poor and disenfranchised and you know they have to mm. take on loans to get the other seeds and they get indebted. Well they it don't seems, have to get those seeds. Right. right? They can the, get the, the public po- seeds but they won't be able to make it. Like, will well, they, they be can't able to make grow? it as much. No, right. No, no the the point They're probably is, barely getting by as it is, though. Don't you think? So the problem is, I think we're seeing the outcome here uh, uh, from the people who basically said, "All right, I'm going to you know get a loan, possibly from a loan shark, and then invest this in order to get a higher payoff." Right. If it works out, if it's beautiful, if it was great weather, it works out really well. If it didn't, I'm screwed, and then I commit suicide. I'm making a story here, right? But but the but the idea here is still that that it, you know it's it's possibly not the right way to think about this if we're just concerned about well you know the people who took chances shouldn't have been so uh, exposed and uh, uh, if if they if they made the wrong choices. Um, well, that, well I, mean, that's... I think what we're really concerned with is predatory relationships between yep. very poor farmers and giant multinational corporations that don't mm. give a fuck about those people. Yeah. That's what scares but, us but, is that, you know, there's a dehumanizing aspect to this sort of method of producing agriculture. Yeah. So the, the, the real issue here is, though, that most of the, uh, of the big uh, agricultural producers basically produce for rich countries because those are the ones who can pay. So what we're stuck with and very often don't have very good uh, uh, is that we need much more research into getting uh, uh, yield enhancement in you know the things that you grow in many of the poor countries in the world that are also better suited for their agriculture. This is a lot of what, uh, for instance, research goes into and where we should be spending a lot more money. 
So I, I totally agree that we can do it even better. But I just think we need to step back and also realize we have managed to make the world and India and Africa a lot better off, which is why a lot fewer people are starving. Again, you're a glass half full guy. I'm, I'm a, 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 a guy where it says we used to have, what, 7 million kids dying each year of malnutrition. Now it's less than three. That still means there's almost three million kids that die each year from malnutrition. That's terrible. But it's a much better world than seven. Yes. And um, that's a weird conversation to have with people because all people want to think about generally is the negative aspects of any story. They always want to do that. And this is a big story that affects the whole world. I was going to ask you in the middle of all that, um, I didn't want to forget, what percentage of the uh, CO2 emission the greenhouse gases does the United States produce in relationship to the rest of the world? Like, what does the rest of the world produce? So it's uh, about 12%. We of, produce 12% of emissions, yeah. So if we cut back to net zero, you're still dealing with an 88% yes. problem. Yes. And we would just, have just to, to give you a, a sense of proportion, if you actually take out the US emissions from the uh, UN climate model, it turns out that by the end of the century, you'll have 0.3 degree Fahrenheit lower temperatures. So you'll have this temperature increase instead of this temperature increase. Right? So the temperature will continue to increase. Yes, but no slightly less. Do they really have an objective understanding of how much of this is a natural cycle and how much of this is being caused by human beings? Do they have, like, can they, like, quantify it? So we, we started out talking a little bit about what, what do they think yeah. it is. And again, my understanding is that they're saying it's a very large part, it's a pre predominant part that's caused by global warming. But it's also obvious that we have less good understanding of these long-term cycles. So there is some of that concern. But you know, fundamentally, I think you can sort of step back and say global warming is real. It is made by man. It is a problem that we're making. It's not the end of the world. And we need to deal with it, but deal with it smartly, right? So instead of us, you know, gluing ourselves to pictures and saying we got to stop everything right now, right. we got to look at how do we get innovation going so that we get, you know, better, for instance, nuclear or better of, of this Craig Venter guy ideas or these many, many other ideas that are out there. We should be funding all of those. So I, I, I helped assemble uh, together with, uh, 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 I believe it was 49 of the world's top climate economists and, and three Nobel laureates to look at how do you best and smartest invest in green energy? So better uh, deal with climate change. And what they found was the long-term uh, uh, best strategy was invest in green energy research and development. So if that's the get, long term because there could be some innovation that would be groundbreaking. That could, basically, if you get innovation and you find a uh, breakthrough, you'll have fixed the problem. If you don't get that innovation, we just won't fix the problem. We'll do a little bit of it at very, very high cost and we'll end up a little bit like we talked about with Germany, right? You'll, you'll end up spending half a trillion dollars and cut a tiny bit of your emissions. To sort of shift the narrative and get people to stop being terrified of a future with uh, the climate increasing the way it is on a steady rate. Like, w what what can you say to people that would get them to, like, is there, a, like, a real simple way of breaking this down that gives people an understanding of the perspective, like, how much this has been exaggerated, how, how what, what the danger actually is, like, one of the big ones is Miami. In mm. 10 years, Miami's going to be underwater. Yes, yes. But meanwhile, banks kill, keep financing people building these giant skyscrapers next to the water. Like, yeah. what's going on? Yeah. Is Miami going underwater? No. 
I mean, and, and the simple reason is because we know around the world that when sea levels rise, it is very cheap and simple to avoid most of those problems. And Holland obviously is the great example, right? Holland has, uh, while sea levels have been rising, they've actually gotten much larger because they know how to do this and they're very, very safe. Remember, 40% of the country is underwater. If you go to Schiphol, which is the 14th largest airport in the world, Amsterdam Airport, uh, they proudly say on their website that we're the only major airport in the world that was previously a site of a major naval battle. Uh, yeah, but you don't feel it. They're fine there, and the total. So how cost, would they do that with the, Miami? The total cost over the last fifty years for Holland is about ten billion dollars. The total cost of protecting Holland. This is not nothing, but you know, for a rich country over fifty years, that's almost nothing. It's not that bad. So and, what about Miami, though? How would they protect Miami? So I I don't know specifically how you do this for Miami. The point is, Miami is incredibly valuable. Obviously, you find, a, uh, as I understand it, there is actually some problems with uh, that it's built on coral and yeah, that it'll be porous. harder to. Yes, it'll be harder to do. I'm not saying this is going to be easy, but this is the kind of But you did say thing. it was going to be easy. Well, in general, we know how to do these things. Uh, and, and so I don't know how specifically you're going to do this for Miami. But I do know that we've done this almost everywhere on the planet. Remember, if you go, uh, so New York Times took me down to the uh, waterfront uh, uh, cafe in New York uh, when I published my first climate book. Uh, and that this is now, what, five streets away from the waterfront, right? Because New York has actually grown. We've seen the same thing happen everywhere on the planet. So even Bangladesh, which you know, is a very poor country, has actually increased its land surface while sea levels have risen because we know how to do this. Has anybody done that like with a model for Miami? Because, again, what you were saying I, I had heard was that the problem is the ground is porous yeah. and that whenever there's like a, any sort of a water event in Miami, the streets are flooded and that they're worried that as the ocean level rises, this would be insurmountable. Like, yeah. I, I don't know if that's as simple a problem as what they're dealing with in Holland. Or in a lot of other places where they make dams yeah. and seawalls, what they do with New Orleans. Yes. And and I, I don't – so I should possibly have been less quick and say – You son of a bitch. Yes. That's what you've M done. Miami, I don't know. Everywhere <laughs> else. we have. Yeah. So there are good global models that look at this. Uh, if I can actually show you uh, a graph of a global model uh, on uh, – uh, so it's uh, number 23 on A, on the A file. So this is a model for the world that looks at how many people are, are getting flooded. Okay. And what it shows you is that in, uh, in 2000, about 3 million people got flooded every year. And so you can see over there in 2000, 3 million people get flooded and it has a cost of 0.05% of GDP. Mm -hmm. Now, if you assume that there's going to be no adaptation, this is pretty much where all the catastrophic stories come from. You end up in this situation where you know 187 million people will be flooded. This number has been both on the f cover of Wall Street, sorry, Washington Post and in New York Times. And there's a New York Times Abed, lots and lots of- This is know, at 2100, year 2100. 2100, if you know, sea levels rise, we do nothing about it, then obviously this is going to be terrible. So it's going to cost 5% of global GDP. But this is not the world we live in. We'll actually adapt. And that's where, you know, so that's why I said in this general thing, it's not going to happen for Miami, but I don't know whether the model has actually modeled, particularly Miami, right? It's modeled the world. This seems like a real problem, though. Like, if, if there's not real adaptation ideas that are on the books that, like, seem like they could be implemented, 
80 years will go by pretty quickly. If 187 million people are flooded, if there's no adaptation, then you have to also think about population increase. You have yes. to think about uh, the increase in the amount of CO2 we release. The, there's a lot of other things sure. you have to factor in along with no adaptation. But the, but the point is we will not be in this world. Are you sure? Yes. How? And the authors themselves say this is absolutely inconceivable. Worst case scenario. Everybody, everybody will actually adapt. You will put up higher sea, uh, sea dikes, and, and much of this is not going to be these you know, amazingly big structures that are going to feel overwhelming. It's just simply water management. And so the realistic outcome is that by the end of the century, about 15,000 people will be flooded, and the cost of GDP will be, both for protection and from flood costs, will be almost 10 times lower in percent of GDP. So this adaptation that uh, you show on this chart, where's this chart from? So this is from one of the most quoted story, uh, stories. This is one of the few uh, articles that actually both look at both adaptation and no adaptation. Okay, uh, so, so it's from Hinkle 20, uh, 2014, I think it's... Uh, yeah, it's I, I don't have internet, so I can't actually show Got you it. right now. So no it's, adaptation, it drops down below the rate where it's at currently. Sorry, at ad, with, with adaptation. With, excuse me, yes. with adaptation. The, yes. the amount of people flooded drops below. And much, much below, right? I yeah. mean, from 3 million to virtually nobody. To 15,000. And that is, but that's, that's globally? That's globally. What that tells you is that this is an issue that we fix, we know how to fix, and Holland is a great example of that. If you're rich, you fix it. If you're poor, you have a real problem. This, of course, is why so many people died in China and India when there were floods back in the 1920s, as we were talking about before. Mm -hmm. When you're poor, life sucks in right. so many different ways. It also sucks from climate. And that's, of course, one of the reasons why I think when people say, and this, they're right to say that, climate is going to harm the world's poor the most. And, and they sort of jump to this unwarranted conclusion, so we need to do something about climate. No, it's because it sucks to be poor. We should do something about not being poor. Mm. You know, the, uh, there's a, a big hurricane that hit Tacloban in 2013, a, Filipi a, a Filipino uh, uh, city. And it, it happened right when there was a, 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 a global warming meeting, um, one of those big cop meetings. Um, and everybody outpoured and said, oh, this is because of global warming. Of course, there was actually a p exactly similar hurricane 100 years before, uh, 1900-something, uh, uh, that, 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 that followed the exact same path and killed half the city's population back then. It was much, much worse. This time, it only uh, killed about 2% of the, of the city's population. But the people who got killed and the people who got harmed we're still, you know, essentially living under corrugated roofs. Our job is to make sure that they don't live under corrugated roofs, that they actually live in good buildings, that they have those clamps that we talked about, mm -hmm. that they have all these other opportunities so that they can live well. Of course, we should also, in the long run, find a way to actually make sure we fix climate change. But it's wrong to say, because these poor people are going to be focused with more climate change, we should do something about climate change. No, these poor people are going to be focused with all kinds of bad things from malnutrition and from bad education and from diseases because they're poor. If we mm. want to help them, we should lift them out of poverty. That's uh, a solution you don't ever hear before. Uh, you you very hear, hear very little of when it yeah. comes to dealing with the situation in terms of the amount of impact on deaths from, and, 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 from these and, events. And the amazing thing is, of course, this is what made our lives great. Of course, most of the rest of the world want the exact same thing. 
and we should ha let them have it. So the real challenge here is how do we find a way that means the vast amount, so the 6.5 billion people who are not rich can actually get a great living by the end of the century and we can also fix climate change. And that's only going to happen if we find the technological breakthroughs, not by telling everyone, I'm sorry, could you do with less? Not mm. only is that not going to win any elections in the long run, but it's also just not going to be possible to convince China, India, Africa to do that. Now, what about the impact on climate change and natural storms, hurricanes yep. and the like? Like, How much are they increasing? How much is the severity of them increasing? Because that's a big yep. point of confusion for yes. people. I've heard... I've heard multiple people say that those storms are worse than ever and more frequent than ever. And then I've heard people say, no, they're actually less frequent than ever, but stronger. I've even heard people say, no, 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 they're more frequent and less strong. So I don't know <laughs> no. what's going on. No. So if the, the biggest point on this, I think, is they're certainly much stronger on TV. Right. I mean, you hear much, much more about them because well, they're such great. They're such great stories. Yeah, they absolutely yeah. they sell. But if you actually look at the data, we cannot tell right now. So that's that's the conclusion from the uh, from the government agencies of the U.S. as well. We can't still tell that there is a fingerprint from climate change on hurricanes. We can't. So no, we can't. Why can't we? Because there is such a natural variability that you can't see, oh, this increase or this decrease is because of global warming. Is there an if you, increase trend currently? So, well, so in the 1960s, sorry, in the 1970s and 80s, there was a lull in hurricanes that hit the U.S. That was also when satellite coverage started. So much of what you see now is if you start from the 1970s or 1980s, there is an increase for the U.S. Uh, but that's probably... Uh, uh, spurious, because if you go back in the 1950s and 1960s, there was actually just as many hurricanes. So what you do, and this is by far the best estimate, so I actually have that, I brought that with me. Uh, if you take a look at uh, uh, slide four on A, in the A file, uh, there we see, if you look at the number of hurricanes that have hit the U.S., because remember, we don't know about the hurricanes that we couldn't see uh, back when we didn't have satellites. Right. Now we see them because we have satellites, but that, that's obviously the wrong way to, counter, uh, to count. So if you just look at the hurricanes that landfall on the U.S., you get this graph. Mm. Uh, and so since this is 19 from 1900 to 2022. Yeah, so 2022 is obviously not done, but it's probably right. done. And it looks... Um, incredibly similar. It's actually slightly decreasing. This is not significant. Slightly decreasing from 2008. So, <clears throat> sorry. Or no, from 2004, so from, from rather. From 19, if you try to put in the best line, as you can see, that's the dotted red line, mm -hmm. you actually have a slightly decreasing line. So oh, I see. I see the overall, be, the average. Yeah, the overall average used to be uh, you know, more like two hurricanes per season. What the and hell? that's down to 1.6 or something. Sorry. What the hell was going on in 1980? It looks like 86. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I was going to pull up a... Uh, this is a contradicting chart, though. Um, okay. Hit me, me with it. It specifies, though, North Atlantic, which this does not. Okay. So North Atlantic is where the predominant amount of hurricanes exist in the United States. Is that correct? Or South Atlantic? It's South Atlantic, so North Atlantic would have less of them because well, the water's cold. Northern Hemisphere, I believe, is not just it's not North compared to the United States. It's North versus South Hemisphere. Oh, okay, okay. Why Atlantic hurricanes are getting stronger faster than other storms? 
Yeah. So Hurricane is, Ian, two hundred sixty four percent since nineteen eighty mm. compared to the globe. According to this chart. Percentage yes. of tropical cyclone activity with major intensity. So major intensity indicates that the sustained wind speeds reach a category three yep. level or higher. So yep. that seems like there's more of them. Yes. And notice what that happens. It starts in 1980. And that's why, you know, when you when you do these numbers, it's very easy to get this number, uh, this result if you start in 1980 when they were much lower. If I can just show you the other graph again, because I showed you for all of the hurricanes, but we also have... Uh, if you take the next slide, uh, for uh, that's just the strong hurricane. So that's exactly the same as what you just showed, uh, category three and and uh, uh, and uh, higher. And what you see here again is that there are fewer hurricanes, not not more hurricanes hitting the U.S. today than they used to be back in, in the early part of. Is this saying there's only one per year, or yes? That doesn't feel like that's right, though. This is one major hurricane landfalling each year. Yeah. Is that usually what we get? And so if you go all the way back to 2006, which is that year we were talking about, it looks like there was four. Yeah. So that, so from that, 80, so when you're looking at that, that major- was 2005, that was uh, Hurricane Katrina and all these others. Okay. So yeah. when you're looking at that other chart that shows the increase from 1980, see with 1980, it's just, all those years it's just one, and then it gets up to four in 2006. And that's a rough year. So all that factors into the average, and that kicks the average up to 264%. Yes. But a lot of it is from 2006. But and when and a lot of it is because you just you know go from a period when there was a relative lull mm -hmm. to a period when it's back up. On these so, charts, what is it differentiating as major or not major? Because like, mm -hmm. then we get to like, we almost got through all the names I thought a couple years ago. So, yes, sorry. Uh, so major is category three, but these all landfalling. Remember, a lot of hurricanes are not landfalling. So the reason why we run out of names is because they, we are able to see a lot more of them. Mm. So they actually estimate, this is a reanalysis uh, by NOAA and all those guys. Um, so they actually found that we now name about four storms more than we would have named in the early 2000s every year. Because we've just become better at, you know, notice, oh, there was a hurricane, and then it uh, dropped uh, dropped off. Right, because they don't hit. They but don't. Not only because they don't hit, but typically they're just one or two days. Uh, and, and what's the and percentage of them that actually hit? The, 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 the problem is, like, when they get strong enough on the ocean that they yeah. can carry over onto the land and devastate the land. So the, the reason why I'm looking at landfall is because in the early part of last century, you would have, it's very likely that someone would have noticed a landfalling hurricane anywhere in the U.S. But if it's out in the middle of nowhere, there's a very good chance nobody would have noticed. Actually, you can see in the, in the data that when uh, the, uh, the um, uh, Panama Canal opened, suddenly uh, you know, ships started going a different route. So there was a big part of the Atlantic that they no longer traversed. And so, we never, so you know, the number of hurricanes dropped in those areas because you, know, you need it to have sort of a ship to be out there and noticing. That's why mm. it's a very, very bad way to look at this if you just look at how many hurricanes do we know about because we just know about a lot more now. So that's from satellite radar and that was what year they started implementing satellite? Um, this is about 1980. 1980. Okay, yeah. so that's when, okay. So, so it's again, not clear but, but, but your, point, the, your point was to basically say, what people will, are worried about is that there's going to be a lot more hurricanes. Yes. Well, actually, so the best evidence seems to indicate, as, uh, that was one of the points that you said, that there will probably be fewer hurricanes, 
but they will be stronger. And overall, stronger is worse than fewer is better, which means that overall there'll be slightly more damage. Right. So global warming is bad. That's you know one of the many things that you know will actually be worse with global warming, but it's not terribly bad. It's somewhat worse. And of course, at the same time, we're getting much better at dealing with this impact. What you're actually seeing, if you look at the total cost, for instance, on on uh, on, on hurricane impacts and all kinds of climate impacts, it's actually going down, not up, in percent uh, in percent of GDP. Mm-hmm. Why? Because we now know we have much better prediction. We know how to you know uh, deal with these things. For instance, get uh, a lot of a lot of stuff that can be moved. We get it out of harm's way. So every time there's a hurricane, you know, all all uh, trucks will uh, go to other states. That kind of thing. So there's a lot of things that don't get damaged. We can also build better, as you talked about, uh, with houses and so on. So we have a lot of ways to reduce this. But what is happening is it'll reduce slightly less fast because of global warming. Again, not the end of the world, but a problem. So the fear-mongering would have you terrified about a future that's impossible to fix yes. and that we're doomed. Yep. And you, you're, you're simply saying it is a problem, but it's not yes. our biggest problem. It's, it's, it's a problem in the sense that it slows down progress. Right? And if I can just, you know, because people talk a lot about uh, uh, the fact that we won't have enough food either. Uh, I have I have another slide um, on in the B file and uh, uh, God I need glasses in number six. I, Nineteen. I, sorry, I was just googling this. Uh, twenty twenty. It says eleven hurricanes made it to land. Here, a total of eleven named storms made landfall in the United States, breaking the previous record of nine in nineteen sixteen. Sorry, eleven. Named storms or a- six of these were storms struck the United States. That's hurricane intensity. They were talking about category three and above. That was that. That was just this one though. Right. His chart, which was this. Is it all hurricanes? This is major hurricanes. You need what to is go a, back. So yeah. category one. What's the this, worst? Is category one the worst or four? All the, no, this is four is the five, worst, right? Five, five is, is the worst. worst yeah. This just says four hurricanes hit U.S. and four, and then when I Google it, it says there's at least six, if not eleven. Yeah, that's. I mean, this this is period literature. Uh, I have no doubt, and the, the updates are for the guy. This is uh, 2020, Jamie? It. Yeah, I just was trying to pick one year. Yeah, 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 no, that that's all, great. You know? um, mm. uh, and these, and the one that, this was saying they're intensifying. This says that, like, since 1950, only uh, nine Category 4 hurricanes have made, hit the mainland, but six of those were in the last five years. Whoa. That seems like a problem. That's a big problem. Nah, it's just, Doesn't that seem like a big problem? Me seeing that, I would see why people would freak out. <laughs> Again, and this is so we we can't sit here and do period research in uh, in real time. Uh, I'm 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 right, showing, but you do but, need contradicting. Yes. Oh no no statements. no, absolutely. But I am saying. That, uh, so I'm, I'm happy to say that we should uh, – so there's very little uh, four and five hurricanes. That's why they, uh, the major – and that was also why the other graph uh, uh, showed the change in, uh, in, um, uh, in three, three, four, Can and five. Can you go back to that again, please, yep. for a second? Look at that, man. Andrew was even more powerful than Ian in 92. That was a 165-mile-an-hour one. What's the fucking strongest one that we've ever had? Is that all of them? That we've had during the last, uh, so that's the last 50 the years? 50 years, yeah. I think, yeah, when that was like 92, I think So that Ian was. was the strongest, or Andrew, excuse me, was the strongest. That was 165. Katrina's mm. not even on this list. No. Wow. 
Why isn't Katrina on the list? I don't know. That was a big one, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, wasn't it Hurricane 3? Category 3? It could have just been yep. big and long and just lasted for yep. a long time. Mm, instead of... Right. The devastation was big because of where it hit. Yes. Wow. That also, seems... if, if wow, you look at the major that. hurricanes, uh, uh, we had a, the biggest drought ever. So there were 11 years where there were no major hurricane that hit the mm. U.S. recently. Uh, I don't know if you noticed. That was when nobody talked about hurricanes. And then, of course, the, the hurricanes came back, and then we said, oh, see, global warming again. So, this is how we're not being well served with this kind of conversation. What is your book so, called? False Alarm? False Alarm, yeah. Cause, do you have that, it? Uh, no, I don't have one yet. Here. Thank you very much. Um, I, don't, I wouldn't say false alarm. I would say there's a lot of other shit to be worried about as yes. well. Yes. But that's, it, is, but it that's, also that's, seems to be a problem. That's the other book I brought you. Prioritizing Development. Yes. Ah, see. So this is this is basically this is what my day job really is, uh, because as, as as you also know, uh, and as we talked a little bit about, so look, there is a lot of problems in the world, and for most people, so rich people, who are you know well ensconced in their lives, and they you know they don't have to worry about their kids dying from uh, infectious diseases or or you know, not having enough food, all that kind of stuff, they clearly can worry about what the temperature is going to be in a hundred years. But for most of the planet's population, so, you know, the 6.5 billion people here, they actually worry about their kids might die tonight. They might not have enough food. They have terrible education. There are all kinds of other terrible things. You know, almost a billion people are extremely poor. So in terms of the overall impact on human health and life, elevating the economy is the most important step that people can take. It's certainly a very important part of it. And again, when we sorry, if I could just show you the the one on malnutrition, the uh, the slide uh, from the B set, uh, stack number six. Sorry. So what I just want to show you was that malnutrition has come down dramatically. And again, what you see here, so this is the number of death uh, uh, from uh, so from kids that are less than five years old. Um, and again, this is very similar to the other chart, yes, but a little bit exactly. of a difference, the yes. difference between with climate change and without climate change. Without climate change is only slightly lower, but the overall trend is much, much, much lower than it was in 1990. Yeah. And this is because we're getting better at you know, making agriculture. Uh, this is what we talked mm-hmm. about before. They're much better in India. They're much better everywhere. And so the we overall should, net you know, benefit is positive. We're, we're, we're moving towards a world that's going to be much better. So these guys that are protesting think it's the end of the world. No, it's not. It's a world that's going to be much better. But they're right in saying that climate is one problem. And we should definitely think about how we fix that. But we should also remember... A large part of this is how do we fix all the other problems? There are still people, you know, there's uh, one of the things that just blow my mind. Uh, uh, We all worried about COVID. But remember, the world's biggest infectious disease killer over the last 200 years has been tuberculosis. It's probably killed about a billion people in total. It still kills one and a half million people every year. And we know how to fix it. We, we, we figured that out 100 years ago. That's why no, no one in the rich world died from this. But it, you know, apart from COVID, is the world's leading infectious disease killer. And we do nothing against it. We could, at very low cost, fix most of this problem. And so one of the things I try to push is to say, look, for very little money, we could actually, so we're talking about $3 billion a year or thereabouts, we could actually save almost everyone from tuberculosis. Why don't we make that one of the things we want to do? Yeah. 
it's interesting. That's not a sexy headline that no. gets people riled up and scared because they're not worried about tuberculosis over here. And we're not worried about our kids getting right. tuberculosis, right? Right, right? So in some sense, it's because it's you know it's over there. It's yes. a lot of people in India and in Africa and so on. Uh, but but in some way, it doesn't quite make it okay, right? I see what you're saying. Yeah. So what you're trying to promote is a balanced message, and you're trying to counter the this the climate change fear mongering by saying it is one of our issues, but it is yeah. surmountable, at least in some aspects of it. Oh, it's look, the world will be much better off by the end of the century, but because of global warming, will be slightly less, much better off. So, so what do you think, if you c contemplated the motivations for this fear-mongering and this distorted perception of, uh, of this one very particular issue, uh, you know, when you look at all the issues that we face that you've outlined, hmm. why, why that one? Why, that, why does that one get the most heat? So as, as you just mentioned, it's partly because it's our kids rather than someone else's kids who are going to get influenced by this. Uh, we also just love having something to worry about. I think that's to a very large extent. And then, of course, we have a lot of uh, media that has an interest in pushing a, a catastrophic agenda about anything. You know, so anything is catastrophic. Anything is something that you know we should worry intensely about. Is it just the and media or is it also a political ploy? Oh, of course it's also politicians. For a very long time, this was you know the, the gift that kept on giving for politicians because they basically got to say, the world is ending, but I can save you, right? I yeah. can't do that voice, but you know what I, well, want, I wanted to. Yeah, I so, <laughs> uh, so, so, you know, fundamentally imagine being able to say, I can save you and will promise to do some stuff that will only happen long into the future, long right. after I've stopped being uh, you know, president or whatever it is. Right. Now, of course, this is catching up with us because now we actually have to start paying for all of this. Mm -hmm. And this is where it, you know, the wheels come off because most people are just not willing. Most people are willing to pay something to do good for the environment. They're certainly not willing to pay you know, $5,000 per person per year. Uh, that's just not going to happen. Most people. Most, yeah. so, sure, a few, you know, a few well, very, very the, wealthy the, the people will do. The hardcore lefties will go, we got to take the billionaires. They can fix it all. Yeah, and that's just Fuck not- Elon. That's just not true, right? I mean, they would run out of money really quickly. Right? Yeah, unfortunately. Uh, I mean, the U.S. budget is what, uh, a thousand, what, what is it? Two, three thousand billion, the federal budget, a uh, thousand billion dollars. And, and what uh, uh, Elon has- Two, three hundred million. You know, he would run out in two weeks. He's running two, out of it two just months. with Twitter. Well, <laughs> but, but you know, the point. The point is, these billionaires. Sure, they. You know, I, I'm all for it that they should do more, and I think some of them are doing uh, excellent work, and some of them are probably not. But this is not how you solve this problem. This is about making sure that you actually responsibly can do it with the budgets that you have, or with realistic tax increases. And you know, increasing your tax t five or ten percent of GDP is just not realistic. Do you have a fear that the fear mongering and the way uh, concern I should say about the fear mongering and the way it's portrayed in the media is going to cause people to vote for things and to vote for people that are going to implement things that will ultimately be more destructive than they are beneficial? Oh, absolutely. I mean, partly, if we're suggesting we should do th policies because we're worried that this is the end of the world coming up, that are enormously ineffective, which is what most of the world has done, then we're going to waste a lot of money. But likewise, on the other side, so you could say this is sort of Democrats here in the U.S., right? Uh, but likewise, there's a lot of Republicans that are just like, oh, no problem whatsoever. You know, just keep fracking, do whatever. 
Uh, and, and, you know, because you get sick and tired of having to pay those extra taxes from the Democrats, you might very well end up electing Republicans as well. They'll just not do anything to solve the problem. Uh, and so I, I really think this polarization, this it's the end of the world, it's not happening at all, is very unhelpful, both in the terms that scares people witless, but it also makes it very hard to make these sensible middle of the road kind of arguments, which mm. is we're not going to solve this by huge taxation. We're not going to solve this by making lots of people pay for ineffective policies. What we are going to solve this with is innovation. So we should be spending a lot more on innovation. But the beauty of, of it is right now, globally, uh, the world spends about uh, just a, under $20 billion per year on innovation into green energy. That's uh, in percentage much less than we've done over the last 30 years. Because politicians want to go out and open new solar panel parks or wind turbine parks, because that looks like something not you know fun right. to add eggheads. Is that part but of the problem? Should, is the perception? I, oh, oh I'm, I'm sure it is. And what we should do is we should fivefold increase that to about $100 billion. President Obama and everybody else promised that back in Paris. Uh, and I'm happy to say we had a very, very tiny, small role in that. We should be spending lots more on research and development in green energy because that's how we're going to fix this problem. But We'll only get to that if we actually get people to sort of calm down and realize problem, not the end of the world. And don't tank the economy while you're trying to fix the problem because then you'll limit the amount of available solutions. Because and, the economy, resources. And, yeah, resources. Yeah. and resources. And resources. And and one of the really depressing things that we're seeing now, if if you've noticed, you know, uh, uh, growth rates are coming down. The U.S. used to grow, what, per capita, 3% per year? Yeah. Your 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 uh, your kids would be much richer than you, uh, but in many countries, both in the U.S. and Europe, we're seeing much much slower growth. One of the reasons, this is by no means the only reason, but one of the reasons is that we have somehow realized, oh, we should be sorry for all the things we're doing. We should be doing uh, more to you know, uh, counter global warming, and one of the ways you can do that is by having little or no growth. But the problem with that, of course, is that also impacts everything else. It makes it much more of a distributional issue. You know, if the cake is no longer growing, everybody starts bickering about who gets what uh, slice of the uh, uh, of the cake, and it makes everything harder to deal with. And of course, at the same time, we have the entire developing world that still just wants to get out of poverty, and we're not really giving them a chance either. We're, for instance, pretty much limiting them. We, we've been telling Africa, for instance, for the longest time, sorry, you can't have gas, you can't have coal, you should just go straight to solar and wind, which, of course, can't really power an economy, or at least not right now. Uh, and this while Europe is then you know, starting to grind up more coal because we're cold and because of the war in Ukraine. This is a very complex issue, and uh, the problem is that in sound bites on the news, you don't get to dive into all of the aspects of these complex issues. Knowing what you're knowing, and like, how frustrating is this for you to try to spread this message? Because I'm sure you get labeled, like, immediately you're a climate change denier. Oh, you're yeah. you're you're a shill. You're a bad person. What? You know, how frustrating is this for you when you're trying to get this message out and you're writing these books and you're, you're giving these speeches? I mean, <laughs> fundamentally, if, it would be wonderful if everybody just said, hey, that's, that sounds smart. Let's do that. But, you know, that's not how the real world works. I think it's, it's great to have the opportunity to actually push what kind of solutions work. So what we're trying to do 
We work with lots of the world's top economists. I've worked with seven Nobel laureates in, in economics, uh, trying to say, where can you spend money and do the most good? So on climate, we should be investing in green energy R&D. That's the way you fix this problem. And then we should realize there are lots of other problems, most of which you haven't heard of. Uh, you know, so for instance, the frustrating thing and, and the thing that really drives most of, of global productivity is education. Education almost everywhere sucks, but especially in the developing world. Uh, you know, a lot of teachers just don't know the stuff that they're actually supposed to be teaching the, uh, the, the kids. How do you get kids to be better educated? It turns out that there are some very, very simple ways that we know work incredibly well. So it's called uh, teaching according to level. Uh, so the, the basic idea, you know, if you think about a sixth grade or something where, I don't know, is that 12-year-olds? Uh, yeah, yeah, sixth grade is 12, 11, 11-year-olds. Yeah. So say you have all these six-year, uh, sorry, all these 12-year-olds in the same grade, especially in a developing country, but even here, they have very varying levels. Some of them are just hanging on and don't quite know what's going on. Some of them are far ahead of what the teacher is teaching, right? So the problem is when you're in that kind of grade where we put all the 12-year-olds in one, in one grade, you're actually having a very hard time teaching all of these kids effectively. What we've shown with, and this is not me, we, I mean, lots of really smart people have, have shown this, is in experiments, if you instead make sure that each of these kids are taught at their right level, at the level that they are, they can learn a lot more. Now, you could do that in one or two ways. You could actually shuffle these guys around. So, you know, the, some 11-year-olds are going to be together with some 13-year-olds and maybe one 9-year-old and one 15-year-old and so on. So they all have the same level. That has some social problems, but they're doing it, for instance, in India. You could also do it by every one hour every day, you sit them down with a tablet. And this tablet then finds out what is your level. So it's teaching it in either your language or your mathematics, for instance. And they, it, it very quickly adapts and find out what is your level and then teach you exactly at your level. The beauty is you can actually teach these kids three years of schooling in one real year at very low extra cost. We're talking about $20 per, per, per student uh, per year. So if you do this with a tablet, you can basically have a situation where you can educate these kids much better and teach them much more. Isn't that amazing? Well, that's assuming they engage with the material, right? The, so this is, is it more difficult to get them to engage with tablets than it is to get them to engage with uh, a teacher. That's... No, actually, it turns off uh, out it often as the opposite. They, they they want to have more than just one hour. Uh, it's probably true if you did this a whole day. It's one hour a day. It's partly because so other students can also use the tablet, so it becomes cheaper. It's also partly because we don't want to upset the teachers, because if the teachers don't like this idea, if they are worried that computers are going to take over their jobs, they don't want to play along. And it's also because it, they would eventually get bored. But no, if you sit in a, in a classroom where you're, you know, 40, 50, 60 uh, kids, the teacher is teaching you something that you don't either, uh, you don't quite understand or you're way ahead of this. That's incredibly boring. This tablet is actually challenging right on the level. And the beauty of this is that this is research that has actually been done in randomized controlled trial studies, right? So you've done with some kids, you gave them the tablets, some kids you didn't give them the tablets, and then you see how much they differ. And this matters because they not only learn more, 
but then they'll go out when they become adults and become much more productive in those societies. Mm. So again, one of the things that we try to do, so in that, you know, that big book uh, I, I showed you there. Prioritizing development. Uh, that, that we did that with, uh, with 50 teams of, of economists and several Nobel laureates and trying to find out, you know, of all the different things in the world, what could we do? Uh, but that's a very long book. You can't get most politicians to read it. So we actually did also a one-pager. So I brought that one. I'm hoping we can put that up. So this this basically is the whole. Um, this is the whole outline of all the stuff that we. That this we did. one pager is smartest targets for the world, and what is this? So you should look at this uh, this this out here on this one side. It has all the different things you can do for the world. So this this has come about with a lot of complicated stuff. Uh, and basically, there's a. Is cost there a graph that we can see online of this? Yes. There. Oh, sorry. Yes, there is. Because um, I can barely read this. Yes. <laughs> that is a very good point. Social, so the economic, and environmental benefits for yeah, every for dollar people to find. Spent. How can we direct people to it? So we'll put up the uh, link on uh, if that's okay. Yeah. A lot of graphs, buddy. Yes. Sorry about that. <laughs> that's but if, okay. So basically, what it shows is all the different things you can do for the world. And then the line shows uh, the the length of the line shows how much bang for your buck okay. you get. And so if it's a long line, it's a great idea. Okay. Sorry. Yes. So here it goes. Uh, so what's the best bang for your buck? So trade. Trade restrictions. No, if, Reduce so world trade restrictions. If we actually got much more free trade, that would make everyone incredibly much richer. Sorry, there is uh, in in my slides. There is a better version that you can show online uh, on the the last slide on uh, on Lomborg A. So fifty one. Um, kind of better. Yeah, because it it's at least not as as long, right? It fits this format. Okay. Uh, so basically, you know, if you, sp uh, if you, if you uh, spend money and basically in order to get free trade, you need to pay off the world's rich farmers, uh, but you will get an enormous amount of growth in, uh, in, uh, in the economy. Freer regional Asia Pacific trade. So it's, trade seems to be the biggest one. That's right? one of the biggest ones, yes. And then universal and then, access to contraception. Yeah. So that's basically the idea. If you get more contraception, it means two things. It partly means that women give fewer birth and that means they die less. It also means that each kid that then gets born will get more attention from their, from their parents because there will be slightly fewer kids. Mm -hmm. And they will have more uh, 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 capital available to them. Uh, that means they become more productive and that means the economy will grow more. This is what's typically called the uh, – the, uh, um, Oh, well, I don't think God, we should go. It's okay. That. I don't think we should yeah. go over this entire no, no, no. chart because it'll no, take but, forever. But oh, the, God, the yes. idea is that there's a lot of things that there's we can do for the world yeah. that have and great climate, bang for the buck. And climate is one of them, but it's just one of them, right? Right. And if you think this is the end of the world, you think that's the only thing we should be discussing. I mean, I've heard some people say, you know, if we only have till 2030. You know, we got to do everything for climate. And then, you know, there'll still be poor people in 2030 we can help. And I just think it's so, you know, um, Short patronizing, right? Yes. Because clearly we both want to fix climate change and fix all these other problems in the world. And we can do that, but only if we spend money smartly. So we let's spend the money smartly on climate. 
in research and development, but let's also spend money on you know getting tablets in, into uh, the educational system, making sure we deal with uh, tuberculosis, malaria, malnutrition. There's lots of other things where we, for very little money, can make an enormous amount of benefit. Well, I think that's the most important part of your message is it's not just this idea that climate change is kind of being overblown. It's a very terrifying prospect, but that there's a lot of issues to deal with. Hmm. That's great. I really yeah. appreciate that. Now, I think that we need more of that, more of a, a balanced, nuanced perspective on all of our issues. I'm glad you brought up education as well and all those other things, contraception and poverty. And, yeah, there's a, there's a lot going on there that we need to think about as well. Yeah. And if we start doing that, it can also be a real lift for, for a lot of these people who are terrified. Remember, if you ask people in the, in the rich world, do you think the world's civilization is going to come to an end? 60% now are saying they think it's likely or very likely that humanity is going to end. That's petrifying. And that's just not what's going to happen. And they think this it, is because of climate change. They think the it's because part. of climate change, right? So we can actually both liberate ourselves and realize, yeah, problem, not the end of the world. And then also start talking about all these other issues and make sure that we actually leave this planet not just a little bit better, but a lot better. I love your message. Thank you, Bjorn. That was really great. Thank you. Um, I really appreciate it. Uh, even though you're working for big fracking and you're a <laughs> show for Mountain that. Dew. Stop saying that. Yes. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm okay. Kidding. Mountain Dew, yes. So False Alarm is your book, How Climate Change Panic Costs Us Trillions, Hurts the Poor, and Fails to Fix the Planet. How do I pronounce your last name correctly? Lomborg? Lomborg. Lomborg. Bjorn Lomborg. And then the other one is, this is all the other things that you were concentrating on, of yep. all the different ways that we can prioritize spending that will benefit the whole world, and that's prioritizing development, a cost-benefit analysis of the United States sustainable- no, United Nations. Excuse me. United <laughs> Nations sustainable development goals. And uh, if you're inclined, this is a very detail-oriented book. Yes. This, is, this will fill people's time. Thank you, Bjorn. I really appreciate you Thank being you. on here, and uh, it was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. it. All right. uh, if people want to get a hold of you, on, uh, do you have a website, social media? Yes, yes. Lombard.com, and uh, Twitter is Bjorn Lombard. And L-O-M-B-O-R-G is the pronunciation for the spelling of the last name. Thanks, sir. I appreciate it. Thank you, Bye, everybody.